Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the Kundalini Yoga 3HO community. I am your host, Guru Nishan. I want to thank you for joining us for another episode today. And I'd also like to um, invite you, if you'd like to support this broadcast, you can make a one-time or a monthly donation at gurunishan.com slash uncomfortable conversations. I was born and raised in this community. I love the people of our community. And I wrote several intentions for why I started this podcast. Number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught Kundalini Yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what, we are, what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural misappropriation and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, and toxic positivity, as well as light washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor each body that has come through our community, both named and unnamed. Number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, process their own emotions, get somatic therapy and other therapy and other support as needed, draw your own conclusions and be critical thinkers rather than just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. I want to welcome our guest for today. He was Sat Hanuman Singh Khalsa. He started practicing Kundalini Yoga in 1972. He was one of the 13 original members of the Baba Siddhi Chand Ashram, founded by Yogi John Twombly and wife Suryakar um, in Florida. Orlando, Florida. He started teaching Kundalini Yoga in 1972 and continued until 2007 after relocating to Portland, Oregon, in which he continued his interfaith work and lecturing at schools from Florida, New England, and Portland um, about Sikhi. His daughters are Sat Pavankar and Siri Swamikar, both married to sons of our community. He worked at the Golden Temple Conscious Cookery in Washington, D.C. and Boston for five years and was the top salesman at Golden Temple Emporium, or GT Emporium in Cambridge, Massachusetts from 1976 until 1980. 
He went on to start the Community Business Brokers in 1986 and City Guru Nanak Inc., which is CBB slash CGN, both built, um, and he built both the Southeast and Northeast regions um, in 1986 until 2002. Um, SGN, for those listeners that don't know, um, fell under KIIT, which stands for Kulsa Industries and Trade Umbrella, um, which basically is the holding entity of all the Kulsa businesses, Akal, Yogi Tea, Golden Temple, Bakery, Sunshine Oils, 3HO Health, Sun and Sun, KRI, etc. cetera. Um, he's trained police and FBI about the Sikh path and is the first Sikh with turban and full beard to be hired by TSA DHS. He's now semi-retired working at the Presence Marketing as a as the Presence Marketing Retail Services for Whole Foods in Oregon for the past eight years. Well, Satnam, I want to say what a mouthful. And I know that barely scratches the surface on your experience, but I just want to say thank you for being here, Sat Hanuman. Thank you for having me. Um, please tell us why you feel it's important to share your story right now. Well. Considering it's been almost 50 years since I, um, well, it's been over 50 years since I first um, was aware of this lifestyle and this path. Um, a lot has gone on in the last uh, five decades. Um, and I hear and I've listened to many of the stories that both you have interviewed, recorded, uh, and others, uh, the second generation of 3HO, and, um, and I've listened to, along the way, I became aware of a lot of other things that were going on uh, at different parts of my journey along the path. I, I confronted them when I could, uh, racism for one thing, uh, homophobia another. Um, the, I ne I, the issues that have, been come, that have come up, uh, other than you know, what went on with a lot of the youth in the first generation, and maybe even the second—I mean, the second generation, and maybe even the third generation—in uh, in the school in India and 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 that, um, I thought that what needs to be added to this discussion um, is the business part of it. Um, how uh, this this teacher we had ran his businesses. Um, I heard you. Uh, in your interviews with a couple of people that are peers of mine from the first generation and how I listened to the comments that were brought up in both those interviews that had to do with um, the businesses uh, when it came to like um, buying a building for an ashram or sending our children to school in India back in the um, 80s uh, and then beyond. So that made me think like my story is an important one. And I believe there are other people like myself that have been involved intimately with um, businesses that were um, created by YB. That's who I'm gonna refer to um, our teacher. Uh, and that's, that's pretty much it. Um, we'll go from there. I wanted to say thank you for all that. Um, it's really important to bring this lens of the business and the historical uh, nature of the runnings of it. So thank you for being here. Um, I also know you have a lot of details and a long history of different elements. So I really want to allow you to get right into it. Um, but before we do, knowing that you are practicing Sikhi, teach it, 
your daughters are practicing, you know, in the community. Uh, and I just want to context that for listeners and just say, like, wow, was before we even get into the history, what was it like for you to uh, for like since Prenka's book came out in 2020 and then all the stories came? Was that like the first break open of you cutting your distance from Yogi Bhajan or has it been a long kind of slow um, pull away? I think that that major was the, the break. That was the break that I put, you know, you put your foot on the pedal and you break. Um, I, I have to admit, I did not read um, Pamela's book. I knew her as Premka. I, I was many times I engaged with her from the seventies into the eighties and, uh, and, and until she left. But, but that book didn't really open me up. It was listening to the second generation, listening to other people who had uh, been affected by things that are totally incongruous to what was taught by this teacher. Um, I also spoke to one of his staff of 17 years, um, a woman who um, I worked with when I worked at CBB SVN. Um, and um, she confirmed things about many of the uh, many of the uh, uh, things that came out over the last, say, ten or eleven months. More so, I was aware, as many other people, of things that you hear along the way when it came to YB's, you know, stuff. And I rationalized those things, like many of us did. Um, you know, a man has issues, you know, there's, you forgive for that kind of thing and say, well, there's so much good that this person is doing. He has his shortcomings. We'll forgive him. But there's been so much more that has come out. And, um, and that really, uh, you know, the, the breaks just were put on right around February, March. I, I remember it was just about the time that we were aware of the COVID thing, but we weren't social distancing yet. We weren't really taking it as seriously. We were aware that it was here. And um, I had been working, I've been an activist pretty much my whole adult life, even into my early years. And so I was working with um, a person who was running for the presidency, Marianne Williamson. And of course, you know, no one really took her serious, um, but, but I did. And um, so she came to Portland, um, and I don't know exact date, but I think it was right on the 1st of March. And it was on the way there that my wife got a call from my oldest daughter. And I didn't know at the time it was, it was my oldest daughter who is Sup Pub and Car. Um, we parked in the parking lot of this uh, Unitarian church and I left her alone to have a conversation. I went into the to the uh, church to save us a seat. And um, it was a great night. We got to have a nice time with, with Marianne and talk with her and stuff. But a day later, that was on a Tuesday night, I think it was on Wednesday or even Thursday, my wife said to me, um, we're going to Eugene on Saturday and you need to listen, you need to speak to your daughter. Now that really kind of sparked my attention. Like my intuition just went, red flag. What does that mean? And I have to tell you that prior to all this, right up until that moment, 
I was one of YB's biggest defenders. I didn't call him YB. I called him the serious things up. Um, I was writing things on Facebook. I was right up there, you know, totally supporting it. And, um, and then when this thing hit me and I had to go down and spend several hours listening to my eldest daughter to share her story, which I'm not going to go into. Um, but I, I, that really made me think this is bigger than I even knew. Mm. Um, and nobody, friends of mine, you know, I've had over the years, you accumulate friends and family along the way. You know, I, I lived in several, one of these ashrams for many years. Uh, the last one being the Millis ashram where I lived for 10 years with my wife. And so you, you get to know, uh, you know, I have friends in Virginia and Herndon. I have friends in, um, well, all over the place. And, um, and, and I, you know, you would check out to see, okay, how are you on this? Or people would call me, how are you on this? And I was very honest and upfront. And I said, I'm no longer this way. And I could see that other people that I trusted also were on the same page. And then other people who I thought I trusted were like, like you said, gaslighting, um, neutral or defending to the point of, you know, it was not comfortable. Uh, to hear what they were doing, not just, it wasn't me I was concerned, it was other people yeah. uh, that they were going after, and they still are, I think. Um, so that got me really, but then, Gurdashan, I started to think about my story. How does this apply to me, other than being the father of two beautiful daughters? Yeah. Um, how does that apply to me? And that's why I started to formulate this. I think listening to you, uh, a friend of mine, uh, uh, who used to live in Texas, now lives here in Portland, she had said, this is worth checking out. And we've all been on these calls, you know, various calls over the last several months. And um, when she said, when she recommended it, that's when I went on YouTube and I started listening to some of your interviews. Um, I know Narindian. I know her parents in Vancouver. I know... Uh, uh, um, um, Rose, Ted. Rose, yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah, yeah Ron, yeah. probably. Um, well, thank you for that. I just wanted to give a little context like in present day. And um, if I, I'd really like to give you the platform to take it where you want us to go, um, obviously giving us some historical context more than your bio helps. And then getting into the financial corruption and the history of understanding that I think is a really excellent um, area to address. So thank well, you. you. If you see me going off on a tangent, you'll guide me back. Um, You're right. You know, I'm a storyteller, so I just have to bear with that. <laughs> um, so I have to go back to, even before I told you, I have to go back when I was a real youth. You know, let's say I was just barely a teenager and I was a Christian practicing in a denomination, uh, which I was very active in since I was like probably five years old, all the way up through my teenage years. But I've often told people say, you know, when, did, how long is your hair? And when did you stop letting your beard grow and all that? It was, it was because of that particular upbringing that each time I would sit in a pew in a church and I would see a picture on the wall of Christ, I questioned in my head, why has he got long hair? Why does he have a beard? And everybody else is clean shaven and nobody does that. You know, and I did a lot of research on the times that he lived in. And I thought, hmm, the Romans were the ones who shaved. They were the clean cut society. They ruled everywhere, but he wasn't. And 
So I started to take it from there. Now I'm going to jump into like, okay, 1968. I, uh, you know, everything that was going on in 1968 affected me. I was a senior in high school. Um, I had seen things. I moved from New England to Florida in 1966. My parents separated. My mother took the four of us. I have three siblings. We went to Florida. I was exposed to things you only read about in books. Around me, it was the Ku Klux Klan. It was all that stuff. Mm. So I was an athlete. I was an athlete when I lived in New England. I played ice hockey. I was really good at it, but there was no hockey in Florida. So I had to go back to what do I do now as an athlete? So I ran cross country and track long distances. And uh, I was in really good shape. Um, but I did join the service in 1968 because I wasn't, I wasn't secure in myself what I wanted to do. And even though I could have gone to college on a great on a scholarship, et cetera, I thought, I'm not ready for that. So I went to service. I'm in the service a little over a year, and I meet a rabbi from New York, Columbia University. We have long discussions um, about prejudice and racism and stuff like that. And I realized that he just opened my eyes to a lot of things. Um, but I was still in the military, and the Vietnam War was going on. And I had just been promoted to sergeant, which means I'm probably going to go to Vietnam because once they train you and they get all that, you know, I, uh, I started to read Mahatma Gandhi's autobiography that led me to India. That led me to meditation. That led me to yoga. I always, I, I met, I met Gandhi's uh, grandson here in Portland. And I told him, I said, you see the way I, I look now, that's your grandfather's doing. He did that. And he kind of looked at me like, what? See, what does that got to do with my grandfather? Anyway, um, I, uh, I had a lot of duality and here I was serving in the military. And um, I asked a lawyer uh, at the judge, judge advocate's office if he could help. And he said, you know, I, I know you pretty well. I've known you now for a year. And um, have you ever thought of being a conscience objector? And I went, I thought you had to do that before you went in, he said, and I don't, and I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. He said, no, I, I think if we go back and check your, go right up and go back to your childhood up, if we can show consistency, we can get the Air Force to give you an honorable discharge. So that took another year. I did get discharged. And when I got out, I made up my mind I was going to be an activist. So I did a lot of anti-war organizing, a lot of things like that. Very much like, you, you know, like uh, when you interviewed Tej, I was very active in that. I went to DC in 1971 and uh, hitchhiked down from New Hampshire and uh, was arrested. And I'm proud of that. I was arrested in a nonviolent protest. And, um, but then I ended up, my mother was in the hospital in Florida and I hitchhiked from New Hampshire down to Florida. And um, I'm still like, what am I gonna do now? My sister, who's also uh, a Sikh, good kid in car, so she lives in Espanola. Uh, I told her, uh, well, actually she came to me and she said, you've been to a couple pop festivals, by the way, where I first met YB or saw YB, didn't meet him, but I first saw him in 1970 in Atlanta when I was in the military in 1971. She begged me to take her to New Orleans to a place, the, a, a pop festival called the Celebration of Life. And it was everything but that. But YB was there and I got to be in his presence. I didn't know who he was. Was just a long, tall guy with a beard, dark beard, 
turban on and everything. Didn't know what any of it was, but I felt like, huh, he's really, what he was saying made sense to me. So I go back. I was in a, I was a passenger in a car, as was my sister. I had an accident. I have a scar over my right eye. It took off my right eyebrow and the top of my head. And um, I was uh, in the hospital for five days and they wrapped me in bandages. So I almost looked like I was wearing a turban. Um, went back to uh, home and all my plans of trying to find some spiritual journey kind of went to the back burner. And I saw a poster that said, Kundalini yoga, as taught by Yogi Bhajan. I said, huh, I saw that guy. I've seen him twice. I want to check this out. You know, there were a lot of things going on back in that period of the early 70s. There was the Hare Krishna movement, the Transcendental Meditation movement had been going on since the 60s. There was uh, Swami Satchananda, uh, Yogananda, all these things, the Sufi movement, everything. And uh, so I still wasn't, I did go to the classes. I actually hitchhiked on a Saturday evening, 12 miles away. I hitchhiked uh, to my first Kundalini yoga class. And um, I felt incredible, but that wasn't, that, that was in August of 71. Now go forward, November of 71, I'm taking a world religion class and I'm learning about Sikhi. I'm learning all about this. Now it's very uh, unique because I would later take other courses, including at Harvard Divinity School. And it was always comparing Christianity to all the religions. It wasn't really giving each religion its autonomy and, you know, to see what is the truth here? What's the universal truth here? And, um, but this particular religion class was like that. And it was amazing. So I first heard about Guru Nanak and the Golden Temple and this in a class that I was taking at this college. And then in November, my professor made an announcement at a morning class. A yogi is coming to our school and he's going to give a lecture this afternoon at three. You're all invited. It's no charge. Now I'm doing Kundalini yoga and I'm hearing about this mystical thing out there called Yogi Bhajan, but I'm not really. And he comes to my college. Wow. So here you are. Here you are thinking to yourself, when the student's ready, the teacher comes, right? Right. You got that going into your program, right? A woman on campus who knew I was a vegetarian, I'd become a vegetarian over, the, over those months and stuff. She asked me, would you like to come and meet the yogi? He wasn't called anything but the yogi or yogi. That's why no. in Emka's book, she kept referring to him as the yogi. Yeah, that's what, they, <laughs> that's what everybody called him. You want to meet the yogi personally. So I was invited to have dinner with the yogi after he gave that lecture. Mm. Um, not much interact. I did ask him a question, which he kind of like, you know, pushed away with a little bit of admonishment, which I was kind of intrigued by. Um, I remember my reference point was Mahatma Gandhi. Mohandas K. Gandhi was my reference point. I thought I knew a lot about him. And uh, I asked him a question about Gandhi. And he said, Gandhi was more trouble than he was worth. And I went, what's that all about? But he, he had some kind of energy about him that there's got to be something that this guy knows that I don't know. Interesting. So I went to his class that night and it was at that class after I did the class with him that an incident happened after the class where he zeroed in on a man and a woman whose children were running around, two children, a boy and a girl, 
and a woman next to him was crying in the arms of other people that were there. Premka might have been there. Surya was definitely there. Um, some other people uh, that was comforting this woman. I won't say what her name is or the children, but the children were, he tried to convince this guy, YB did, to um, leave his affair with this woman because these were his two children and he needs to be responsible as a father and go back to his wife. Well, the guy never did. And that woman would then go to, I would end up, you know, that was in, like I said, that was in November of uh, 71. Now, I had never been to the ashram, which was 60 miles away in Orlando, Florida. I had only been doing my weekly class. Not many guys at the age of 21 are going to a yoga class every week religiously and doing sadhana. I started doing sadhana. I started getting up at 3 a.m., taking a cold shower. Had a roommate that did Kundalini yoga with me. He also did TM. <laughs> but he was really into all this stuff, and, and he was an artist. And I was just into, this is it. This is the only one I can relate to. I, I really get, get off on this. And we used to call our yoga classes every Saturday night our pizza class or a Mexican, Mexican uh, feast class because it got you so hungry, almost like smoking pot, <laughs> that you got so that energy was going that you just want to go out and eat. So um, anyway, I, I wanted more. So I uh, went to a what they called an intensive at the ashram in April. It was actually April 1st. It was a weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The rules were you're on silence. We're fasting for two and a half days. We'll, we'll end the fast on Sunday. Um, you're only allowed to say Satnam or Waheguru. And they didn't even say it that way. They said Waheguru and Satnam and all this. And, and nobody knew how to pronounce anything. And, and uh, But the classes that we did, the yoga that we did was so powerful. I got, I mean, it was amazing. Um, I, I really had a heart chakra opening experience, which I didn't know till later uh, what it was, but I just knew I felt incredible. And, um, and then, okay, I won't tell you all that, but I moved on from there and I said, you know, I got to move in here. So I told my girlfriend over in Coco, um, do you want to go with me? She wasn't ready to do that. So I moved in. All right. So happened i went to my first summer solstice sadhana in mendocino county same one that that uh, some of your folks you've interviewed have been to yep drove across the country i first met mukta uh car who was living in tucson i met her along with a bunch of people every all it was it was, a, it was an ashram that was full of women because they all loved and thought satnam singh this guy from brooklyn with a beautiful voice this very ethereal voice was the was the person, that one of them was going to marry him. He was single at the time. Well, we traveled, you know, I traveled from Florida all the way to California. So along the way, we stopped at ashrams in various places. And that was the one we stayed the longest at. Went to Mendocino. Somebody tried to match me up with that woman whose husband left her and left those two kids. Tried to match me up, arrange a marriage for me. It was actually, it was John, John and Surya trying to do that with me. And I went, oh, no, 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 I'm not ready for that. We got back to Florida after all of that. It was gone like two weeks. Um, we're now, we get to be around August. And when I say I was one of the founding 13 people, it was really only about six people because there were two married couples, John and Surya, and this other couple who would later be my oldest daughter's in-laws. And, um, and then there was myself. So that's five. 
And there was a couple other people who moved in after me. And then after that, two women moved in. Uh, one of the, uh, the, one of the married couple's sister, one of his, he, he had like three sisters that got into this. And one of them brought her friend in and that woman, they were all about 18 years old. I was 22. And then what happens? Okay, now we get to September and BBG, Yogi Bhajan's wife, arrives for the first time in the United States. She arrives in New York. I believe she landed at JFK. And people that you've already brought have been brought up in, well, one of them has been brought up at least in one of your news, Huddy Harkar. I kept hearing that and I said, oh yeah, I know who she is. And she was in DC and so was Narinian. Narinian Carr, who lived in LA and also I don't know where she lives now, but you know, she's pretty much involved a lot of stuff. And uh, the two of them were sent by probably YB very uh, to uh, Larry Wentick, who was called Letty Singh, and he was married to Gunga Budgen Carr, Gunga. And they, they sent me. They ran the DC ashram. They ran the DC ashram, and pretty much the, he was in charge of the East Coast. Okay. He was the first kind of Mukia Singh side overall, right? Kind of right hand man to Yogi Bhajan. I think he had Waguru Singh in the Southwest and he had this guy. And then there were other people, like the person who started the Phoenix Ashram was, we called him Baba, uh, Baba, whatever, but he became Baba Don. In Baba Don, correct, correct. And then we had Baba Bert, who would become Sat Santok Singh and, and, and San Rafael. But I, I met all these people. I met Vikram Singh when he came over from England with his wife. I met him in Tucson and everybody from Phoenix came down to Tucson. And we had this big chanting session when I was on my way out to New Mexico, uh, out to California that time. But anyway, BBG is brought down for the YB sends her with the three kids. They're like 16, 14 and 12 or somewhere around that age group, sends them to none other than Baba City Chan. I have just been given a nice guitar and I'm learning how to play it. And I learned a song that related to Gandhi. Remember, Gandhi is my touchstone. Yeah. And that song was something that maybe the original Hanuman 20,000 years ago sang, Raghupate Raghaiva Raja Ram Patita Pavana Sitaram. Anybody who saw the movie Gandhi, that's the final prayer in the movie as they're spreading his ashes over the Ganga. Well, BBG heard me singing that. And she said, oh, you know, Gandhiji, love that. Well, that made me feel even better. Well, then she must have had a talk with uh, Surya and John and said, this gentleman is very devoted. He's a very sweet man. Why don't we marry this guy to him to this young lady over here? And they arranged my marriage. BBG and Surya and John arranged my marriage. And I was like, so like trusting because this must be what's supposed to happen. She did not want to marry me. She had her eyes on someone else, but... She, you know, the women put pressure on her, you know, oh, he's such a wonderful guy. We were married on Thanksgiving Day in November, a year after I first had that dinner with Yogi Bhajan and went to his class. A year later in November on Thanksgiving Day, uh, my mother attended the wedding. It was a small wedding. It wasn't, there was not a, it wasn't a lava. It wasn't your traditional like Sikh wedding. It was more like a hippie wedding. <laughs> Okay. And and BBG presided. She's the one who married us. He married with, you. Wow. Yeah, with John and Surya because you know they were Sardarni Saiba and Singh Saiba because Yogi Bhajan had started making these ministers at seventy two, Mendocino, California. I watched them all become ministers. 
at, the, when, at that solstice is when that whole ministerial thing started, all yeah, the titles. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's when you started seeing more women with turbans on. You started hearing about, you know, you saw the Sikh Dharma flag first time. And yeah, but it was all happening very fast. I was open to it because I really loved what I learned about Sikhi, but I didn't know how this all worked and everything. So I got married. I want to pause you real quick and say you had mentioned to me that Hanuman was your name and then Yogi Bhajan changed that. So has that happened already or are you still coming to that? No, I no, I was okay. In 1972, I was just Hanuman. John looked at me one day and heard me singing and said, you remind me of Hanuman, the monkey god. And he said, and you look like him. I went, really? <laughs> and and so he said, I'm going to name you Hanuman. Got it. And uh, at first I didn't like it. Because I I look like a monkey. <laughs> uh, years later, I would learn so much more about uh, Baba Hanuman and um, and and have much more of a, a respect for that what that name means. But I had the name. Now the reason why the name was changed to Sat Hanuman, besides it's confusing to everybody who ever learns it that doesn't know yoga, doesn't know meditation, has never heard of Hanuman. They they try to they they get tripped up with that th sound. Okay. Well, YB comes John, John Twomley, John Singh Twomley, as he called back then. He <laughs> left, he left and went to India because he just wanted to go. He was a real yogi. He loved yoga. He was really good at it too. And uh, he gave us all our names. He's the one that gave us our names. As I look back on now, I realize YB wanted to brand us himself. Mm. So he called uh, many of us into the room in 1973, a year after, you know, later, and said, okay, put Sut on the front of your name. And said that to my wife, my first wife, he said, her name was Purusha, and he named her Sut Purusha. Mm -hmm. And then you started having my daughter being born in 1974, home birth, beautiful experience, I mean, beyond words, and she would be given the name Sut Bhavan. Now you can see the connection with Hanuman if you remember that song, Patita Pavana Sitaram Pavan, mm. son of the wind is Hanuman. And then I have a daughter named Sat Pavan Gore. Mm. Mm. All right, that's how he said it too. I didn't even understand it when he called me up from LA and he said, her name is Sat Pavan Gore. And I went, uh, sir, I don't know. He goes, Prana, Prana. I went, oh, okay, Pavan, Pavan, okay. Um, and then, uh, so that was ha that. Um, so now we have that. In, but so I started, you know, everywhere I went, you know, how do you say your name? Can I call you Sat? Can I call you this? Can I call you that? I'd, I'd say, just listen to me. Say Sat. Yeah. And then say Honeyman. So say Sat Honeyman. And they go, Sat Honeyman. I say, now say Sat Hanuman. <laughs> you know? But they always wanted to get simple one syllable word i said all right from now on you call me sing okay that's it just sing that's easy for you you can pronounce sing so um you know i was trying to be work but that's what happened with that that whole thing with the name and um you know and okay then um so so she's born sat Pavan's born home birth you're still in the ashram with the other couples okay yeah yeah so then what happens is um okay half the ashram split when john left and went to india because they were attached to him and a new teacher, a new director came down from uh, Massachusetts or New England, and his name was Sampurinsen. And his newly wife married was Swarankar. And they didn't have any children yet, but they would soon have uh, two children that are still around somewhere. But you may know, may not, may interview. We're um, in the community still now. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So we're in Florida and, um, so important. And I, uh, over the years just did not see eye to eye in a lot of things. Um, he was supposedly a minister and I was just one of the guys that lived in the ashram, but, um, um, we were there, we were trying to save that ashram because what do we do? We, we were originally in Pine Hills. We were on like about 15, 18 acres of land, but it was, it was all owned by a guy who owned that land. And in 1973, he sold the property after winter solstice gave us one month's notice. And we had to find somewhere where we could take like 25, 30 people and move somewhere. This probably happened all over the country, but it was happening to us. We found a nursing home that had not been used for years and uh, we rented it. It was weird because it was a place where they put people who were had emotional issues. It was like a, you know, there was a, the vibration was weird. It's almost like today you'd go into the smudge and do all kinds of clearing and stuff. But we went in there and we did a compot and we tried to change the vibration. And um, we were only there temporarily. So we kept looking, where's that place that we're going to finally settle in is Baba Siddhi Chan Ashram. And we found a place in Altamont Springs. It was on a dirt road. It was on an acre of land. And it was a, 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 a house that was selling for uh, $75,000. A mailman, a mail carrier was retiring. He wanted to sell his house for $75,000. Well, we have to put 20% down. I had $5,500 in the account that was left over from my accident. And I said, I'll give $4,000 towards it. And somebody else got a loan from his father and we got that $15,000 down payment and we got that home. That home today is worth over a million dollars. That home today is worth over a million dollars and somewhere in the archives of this organization, someone owns that property as Sikh Dharma. You know, it's a teacher training center. It has beautiful lions on the front, just like in Espanola. In fact, those lions came from some poor and he brought them out from Florida. It's like, years ago um can i anyways, so, you and get some clarity yeah. real quick so when um half the ashram left with larry why why did that take place so was there a split happening was things getting more organized like when was yb coming in and organizing so it kind of went from a little less hippie and more to seeking some people were yeah, that was that was probably a lot to do with it is it where people were really getting high off kundalini yoga but and and they related to the yogi the yogic part of it, but they couldn't relate to this transition we were going through of Sikhi. And I had, um, fortunately for myself, my wife and I, my first wife and I, we were sent to a Himsa ashram where I lived for six months and worked at the Golden Temple Conscious Cookery. Tell us where Himsa is. Tell us where that's at. Washington, D.C. Got it. Yeah, it was one of the the first two, I think, uh, vegetarian restaurants that were called Golden Temple. I think there were 12 of them between Canada and the U.S. The first one was uh, in D.C. and in Boston. Uh, the Santa Fe one was, they had one, eventually LA was one of the last ones. And um, I worked in that place and that was called teacher training. You went there and you worked from four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning until 11 o'clock at night. And then you cleaned up the place and made it really great. So it would pass inspection. You went home and had three hours of sleep, took a cold shower, start all over again, did yoga, then went chopped vegetables and you were a waiter in the restaurant and all that stuff. But I did all those jobs, but I did them with people like Guru Ganesha and Madhu Mandarkar, who weren't married at the time, and um, Madhu Mandar Singh, who was single before, and, uh, you know, and um, Rose, Diana, uh, and a lot of other folks uh, that we all shared that uh, uh, place. And it was a, 
that was probably the first time I was in an ashram where I felt like this is really cozy. This is really the way it is. Now, um, when I went, it's when I went back to Florida and they sent me back because they knew the ashram was splitting up and that Surya called. See, she called and said, Sadhana, and she was crying and she said, I need your help because everybody's leaving. And so Letty Singh, that's what he was called back then. He had he was responsible for the East Coast. So he said to me, will you go back to Florida and help keep this thing together? Helps this new teacher, this new director. I said, yeah, I'll do that. So that's why we went back to Florida and then Sapabhan would be born in that ashram in 1974. Um, but it's interesting because um, uh, she, when she was six months old, some Warren and I, like I said, butted heads a lot. And one day on a Friday after we did our morning sadhana, he said, come and see me after sadhana. I went after, he said, I'm putting you on a Greyhound bus tonight. And I'm sending you to Washington, D.C. to work at the Golden Temple Conscious Cookery again. And you will come back when I decide. Um, Letty Singh and I have spoken. Letty Singh and I have spoken about it. And you'll stay there. And I said, well, what about my daughter? She's only six months old and my wife. And he goes, they'll stay here. We'll take care of them. But you are going to go up there. So I was put on a Greyhound bus at 11 o'clock at night on a Friday, gunning at midnight on a, a, a Saturday night at midnight, and was put in a house, got up, three hours of sleep, got up, did sadhana, and right in front, right there on Q Street in Washington, D.C., big sadhana, Guru Ganesha saw me. He said, come up and play with me. And we were chanting and doing that. The, 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 we, it was no query in sadhana. It was something else, you know? Yeah. And uh, so uh, Letty Singh was sitting there next to Guru Jot Singh, who you've already had brought up in one of your interviews. And this is an interesting thing. I'm sitting there and Letty looks at me and he goes, what are you doing here, sadhana? Right? I was told by the director of the ashram in Altamont Springs, that he, knew. that he knew well he was quick on his feet because he said come into my office tomorrow i want to talk to you go work at the golden temple restaurant they made me the maitre d and i worked at the restaurant by then i was a pretty seasoned about this stuff and and he says uh uh you know go do that the next day i know he had a chance to talk to joe because lady Singh was out of town when all this happened so really some porn had talked to Guru joe Oh, and you use Letty as the, you know, like the Yogi Bhajan, you know, the a other point. guy, the big a guy. Right. The big guy, yeah. So um, he so says to me. At this point, Letty Singh you know, is running the East Coast, not Guru Joe Singh. He's just close in there. Okay. Yeah, double yeah, yeah. He, he had his, I think he was, uh, had a marriage and left and he was brought over from the Midwest, Michigan or someplace. And he was brought over to um, D.C. Um but he was kind of a different kind of person. He wasn't as engaging. He was always like very, you know, quiet and, you know, didn't, I, it's kind of strange inter interaction with him. Ne never really much said with him. But Letty's thing was much more like, I need you to do me a favor. There's, a, there's an ashram in Cleveland, Ohio. And you're, uh, I, I think you're ready to go and be the director and, and stuff because the man who was directing it, his name is, Saram Singh, and he's just graduated from Case Western Reserve Medical School, and the Siri Singh Sahib, or Yogi G, or whatever, wants him to come to L.A. That would be Saram Singh, who is living in Shaker Heights, which is a pretty nice area of Cleveland, right? It's like Beverly Hills in L.A. or something. Mm -hmm. So I get put on a bus 
with my no, I just, I, I, yeah, with my first wife and our six month. Oh, they sent her up from Florida finally. After a month of being at the Golden Temple in DC, they brought her up, they flew her up to DC, and the two of us were on a bus and our six month old subpubbing car, and we were sent to Cleveland. And Swar, I mean, uh, Kulwant Car and Saram were sent to LA, and I had no money. What do I have? I've been working at these restaurants with tips and nothing, you know, room and boards taken care of. It's almost like being in the military. You don't get paid much, but you're covered. Right. And, um, and you know, no one really thought about it, but you're, you know, think about it. People think it's weird, but, and it is weird, but he puts me on a bus in Florida because he doesn't want me around, sends me up there. And now this guy is going to do something he didn't count on the guy in Florida. You're now going to be the director of an ashram in Cleveland, Ohio. So I have to find a place to live because what's his name's lease and Shaker Heights is gone. So I'm out again. What do I do? So I get a job at a natural food, health food store as the assistant manager. Guy smoked a lot of pot. So he would go for like an hour and a half lunch break because he's smoking pot and I'd be taking care of everything in the store. I was uh, 25 years old. So and, and so we're there. We were there until winter solstice. Now we drive a driveaway car from Cleveland, a Cadillac, an Eldorado convertible, down from I-75, down from Cleveland to where it was held, which was in DeLeon Springs and north of Altamont Springs, where the winter solstice was. In Florida. And in Florida. So I take one what of my- What year students, is this? What year is this? 1975. Okay. So I've been in Cleveland from May until December, and now I'm down in Florida again. After, okay. Something happened at that particular solstice that was interesting. There was a, the director of the Albuquerque ashram, or the guy who ran that ashram, his name was, he's no longer around. His name was Bahadur Singh, not to be confused with the wonderful Bahadur Singh who lives in Texas, who is a friend of mine, a lovely man, um, but this guy. And we go to solstice, and remember, this is outside winter solstice. There's a make st a stage that's sort of been put together with, you know, palms and everything over the top, and, and, you know, everybody's sitting in line and they're sheepskins. And I'm I'm asked to come up on stage by none other than Diana Rose, Bhagwan Kar, really? who knew me, who knew me from the Golden Temple, right? In in DC. So she said, Sahaba, join me and let's get set the vibration, chanting Guru Ramdas, right? So we're up there. This guy Bahadur, he says, I don't want any announcements made except through me. Okay, no problem. You're 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 the stage manager. YB is somewhere else. You know, he hasn't arrived yet. There's always that anticipation when he shows up. So I'm chanting to Garamdas and the, the people setting up for the tantric lines, the tantra lines say, Sahan, will you ask everybody to sit up straight so we can get these lines? And I said, folks, get, sit up straight. Oh my God. <laughs> that was it. So when the tantric tantra was over and YB left, went back to his cabin and everybody went down to what they call the long house or whatever. They went down to have their, their evening dinner for the solstice meal, I went, Bahadur walked, uh, he walked up to me and he said, I thought I told you not to say anything. I said, I just, I was asked to tell people to sit up straight. And he basically took my head off and I didn't, I wouldn't stand for it. I just wouldn't stand for it. I said, you know something? And people heard this. In fact, some poor heard it. Remember, I, the guy that originally sent me. And, and he the heard, one running the ashram in Florida. He heard me say to a lot of people heard this. I said, Bahadur, you're full of shit. <laughs> and we're at summer, we're at solstice. We're in this 
thing where everybody's like, you know, holy and stuff. High vibration. And, and I and I just said, this is that's bullshit. And uh, so then what happens is they call a we I wouldn't call it a tribunal. It was more than that. There was a director of the ashram in Hartford, Connecticut, the director of the ashram in Massachusetts and Montague, which was the Steve Joseph's uh, was called Gushavit Singh. He's known for writing the Gurumdas lullaby and, you know, and yeah, all that stuff, the long, tall yogi song and all that stuff from that period. And so then I got Livtar Singh would be. He, so they brought Jot, Gurjot Singh and Gurtej Singh. All of these guys were either Mukhi Singh Sibes or Singh Sibes. And there was like eight or nine of them. And I'm on the hot plate. Wow. You're a minister. I said, I'm not a minister. Because I had been the director, so therefore I must be a minister, right? That's how their minds work. And I said, I'm not a minister. And they said, your behavior the other night by saying this to another minister, I said, what did I say? I called him out on his, on his stuff. They... It went around, around, around. It lasted at least an hour. And finally, one of the people, by the way, Tej, Gertej, I have to tell you publicly, he was very compassionate. Always thought he was a really compassionate person. But I remember Rishabad, Steve Joseph, saying, Sat Hanuman Singh, all you have to do is admit that you're wrong and you'll be right. Oh my which God. To me, which to me meant just be secure with yourself, be humble. You're, you're okay. You're, you're okay. Don't worry about it. So I said, all right, I'm wrong. I was wrong for doing what I said, saying what I said, and the way I said it, I was not. And, and it, it ended right there. It ended, all right? So now my wife stays in Florida with Sapapin. And by the way, she's pregnant with our second child. Okay. All right? And they stay in Florida because my mom and her mom lived in, and lived in, in Orlando. So they could see each other. And I went back to the ashram. We had just bought a house, a nice, beautiful home. I was a, I had the GI bill, you know, I had the VA, you know, VA loan, and I was all ready to have this house so we could move in Cleveland, Ohio, of all places, Cleveland. But I get a call from a guy in um, Montreal saying, and I think his name was Baba Singh. He said, "I talked to the city Singh side, and he wants you to move." Don't Montreal, and I'm thinking to myself, "Oh, to move to Montreal." Montreal, and I'm thinking to myself, "This is what I'm thinking." Ice hockey, yes. And um, and then I get a call from Gershubin, who had just been asked to move from Montague in Western Mass to Dorchester, which is a suburb of Boston. And he says, the Sir Singh Saib and I just spoke and we, we decided to have you move to Boston. Now I'm happy about that because I'm from that area. And uh, so I, I call my wife up in Florida, I said, we're moving to Boston. She said, what? I said, we're moving to Boston. Um, they're going to have me go first, and then you're going to come later. And so what they did is they sent her to Hartford, Connecticut, and she went through hell. And her she's pregnant, and she's got a child that's, you know, not that, you know, a year old. Yeah. And she's going to be stuck there in Hartford while I'm in Boston. And they had just opened this Golden Temple Emporium which you have to see what it was like. I mean, high rent district right across the street from Harvard University, Harvard Yard. I mean, it's all right there. And it's historic Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm like, this is cool, you know, but the Emporium was basically a bunch of junk. They had cheap 
Hishi silver that people would string at the ashram. They bought conch shells from somewhere. They would sell them and they'd buy plants from a florist and they would sell them. And, and I was like, what is this? Well, I went in the back room. There was about 15 pair of Birkenstocks and we had snow on the ground. In fact, the day I arrived in Boston, it was a blizzard. And I'm like, I'm the Selby's. So in one week, I sold all those Birkenstocks with snow on the ground. <laughs> well, that got back to Gershubid and to Mahan Singh, who was then, uh, uh, he had become the head of the ashram in, in Dorchester because a gentleman left with his wife. And uh, so he calls me and he goes, boy, you're a pretty good salesman. I said, what? I just was telling them what I would do and how I would do it. And people trusted it. And this is when Birkenstocks were like 25 bucks. Okay. <laughs> and uh, for back then that was expensive, but I believe that they were quality, so I got into it. Well, from then, we built a business around that. In the spring, we got we started ordering all the different styles and all the different sizes, from a child size to a size 15 men's, and we had Birkenstocks. But then people heard about it, so we started getting in these quality footwear people coming in from various vendors, brand new things that no one had ever heard of, Timberland, Rockport, Cole Haan. No one had ever heard of those lines before. They were all startup companies in New England. And they wanted to be in the Golden Temple Emporium. And so we were like, it was great. I mean, everybody wanted to be in our store. And I had to tell Timberland, no, you're not good enough. I did. I did. They had to bring us up to New Hampshire and convince us to take their shoes, their boots. But we had other stuff. We were the first Red Wing store east of the Hudson River. We were the very first. Guys with turbans on. These people flew in from Minnesota. We want you to carry Red Wing because we had their competitor, Chippewa from Wisconsin. <laughs> anyway, we were, for five years, I had fun. I used to just loved working in that. And then I would, so I'd work there from like nine in the morning until six at night. Sometimes if we were open at night in the summer, I would work there. And then, and then, and then I would go down, take the train or the bus to Boylston street and walk up to the golden temple conscious cookery on Massachusetts Avenue. And I'd work as a waiter. Wow. All right. One night. And your wife and kids are still in Connecticut. No, no, they, they, they after about 40 days, they ended up coming to, um, to Dorchester and we they had four houses in Dorchester. The main house was was uh, on Kenwood Street and it was where the main house where the directors lived, but it's where we had Sadna. It's also where Siri Swamikar would be born uh, in May of 76, another home birth. Mm-hmm. Only this one was unique because she was breech and we had to, wow. but the doctor that delivered her had delivered other children in the ashram. My first subhavan was delivered by a midwife who had 12 children eight of which she self-delivered herself. Oh my. The woman's probably not alive anymore, but what a Mrs. Johnson, I'll never forget her. But this doctor, Dr. Ilya, he comes when he finds out that our child is breech and says, don't worry, don't worry. I've done lots of these. So he says, you have to tie a turban on my head. And he was Armenian, he was Christian. And I said, Dr. Ilya, you don't have to wear a turban. He goes, there's like, you know, there's like her mother, my, my first wife, there was, Gurbachinkar, there was Dharmakar, there was like two other women who were friends with my wife and they were there, only women, and then me, the father. And so I had to tie a turban. I still have a picture of it. I tied a turban on his head and he just went doop, doop, brought the baby out, perfect. She was perfect. She came rear first as what happens in a breach and she came out and it was just just beautiful and it was incredible. So, so Siri Swami was born uh, in, in, in 1976 and, um, but we, you know, in those days, I think those ashrams that existed in those days, everyone was sort of family connected. Everybody felt the coziness. You had the extended family. 
All right. Right around 1977, 78, we decided as an ashram in Dorchester that we were going to all have wills. Wills. And in 1976, December of 76, I legally changed my name from what it was, my birth name, to Sat Hanuman Singh Khalsa. And I, Sat Pavan was born with Sat Pavan Kar, so that she went from my for, former last name to Khalsa. And my first wife, she, her name was legally changed to Sat Purusha Kar Khalsa. And then Sri Swami Kar was born, Sri Swami Kar, because YB gave her that name, Sri Swami Kar. And, and so we, non-legally, I'm legally Khalsa, okay? I didn't go by my birth name. I went by this because I was just, this is the lifestyle I was living. Um, I had taken Amrit in 1974. I took Amrit. You know, I was totally into this thing. I, uh, yeah, so anyway, so now it we got sounds this. like so far you're mostly um, sent around by the head honchos with titles, not by Yobi particular, YB particularly, but his name they, was invoked. I was like, they always used his name to invoke the authority of their own authority. So, it, for lack of a better word, it just sounds like it was like an early sausage fest that people were like so kind of like so proud of their position and used it to like kind of be in power. Yeah, and you just, you know, as things evolved, there was much more of a de democratic uh, uh, culture within the ashrams. People had to had a say. There was an equality. You know, people, it wasn't an autocratic. It started on autocratically, but then it became much more democratic. Uh, at least it appeared to be anyway. At least, um, yeah, I think that's a good point too. And, and also that, you know, the directors and all the titles, like all of this was implemented from him. So they're just copying suit what they're modeling, marrying people, giving names, ordering people around, because that's the teacher model that's being displayed. I think by that point, people didn't arrange marriages at their local level. It was done by YB. Okay. Everybody, he was the guy that everybody went to. You want to get married, you want a spiritual name or a Sikh name, you go to him. Everything was done that way. I came around the early days when it was done at the ashram level. It was done oh, in Tucson. Cool. It was done in Tucson. It was done in Florida. Um, I don't know if it was done other places, but okay. So now I've got a family. Okay. We have other families. We're going through sharing that experience and that, that responsibility with people. People became godparents to people's family. There was a will made who was going to be. And um, my two uh daughters their godparents would be gurbachan singh and gurbachankar who worked at the golden temple Con well he worked at the golden temple country because our we were also not only a comfort footwear store probably the first in the country quality stuff and the number one birkenstock store in the united states by the way we sold more birkenstocks per week than anybody outside of a place in california that was a boutique shop because she brought them over in 66 or something um and by the way Gurganesha, god bless him he's the one to put birkenstock on the map in the United States, he, he went around like Johnny Appleseed planting seeds everywhere. <laughs> and we, so, so we had that, uh, a situation, but the Gerbuchens became our God, my daughter's godparents. These are the Gerbuchens that are in New Mexico. Correct. Okay. And Gerbuchens Singh ended up in New Mexico because, okay. So he started bringing in the native American, um, motif. He brought in, uh, Kachina dolls and de vegetal dye Navajo rugs and beautiful turquoise and coral and jet and all these various stone. You mean to the GT? To the, G to the Golden Temple Emporium. Oh. So we had a really beautiful store. I mean, we, people shop there. I had Caroline Kennedy, Livingston Taylor, James Taylor's brother, Mike, uh, Michael and Patrick Wayne and their wives, John Wayne's. They all came and shopped. Now, now whose business is this? Well, it turns out it was Mahan Singh's because he was the Harvard business uh, graduate and it was his business. 
It wasn't. Okay. So you but, were just an employee of it, but obviously. I was, I was, you I, was the, I became like the top salesperson. There were like two other people that really were incredible partners in this. And we ended up opening up a second store in, in what would be like the equivalent of Park Avenue in New York. It's Boylston Street. So we had, I had to bring that. So when you started that store in 1976, we were lucky if we made $100 a day. When we, when that store was open for, I think about 14, 15 years, I worked there five years. And we went, to, we were making three, four, five thousand dollars a day easily. And then the one in Harvard, uh, in, in Boston, we had to bring that up to snuff. So I did that. But I also said to Mahan Singh, because he said, Can you do that? I said, If we do that, it's a we, not a me, it's we. Um, I want you to take us all out to dinner. And also, I want to raise, and I will be, you'll make me the official manager of one of the two stores. It's a deal. We brought it up to what he needed, we surpassed it. And he didn't, he didn't do what he said he was going to do. He paid me a flat $200 a week. And I worked at both the restaurant and the shoe store uh, or the Emporium. And, and he didn't. And so I realized I couldn't. You didn't couldn't. get a raise. You didn't get a manager position. You didn't, nothing. No, he, he, had a, he had an attitude that kind of branded me for a long time. It said, uh, I believe in the Peter principle, he said. You reach to a certain level and that's all you go. You don't go any higher. And I went, okay. So I... Uh, I, uh, I left the ashram in uh, 1980. I loved being there. I loved the family and everything, but I decided Gurbachans took over the ashram in Albuquerque that was once held by the guy I told him he was full of you know what, Bahadur Singh. <laughs> well, he left 3HO and all that. And so they end up were sent there. And of course he wanted to be Gurbachan Singh, God bless him and God bless Gurbachkar, wonderful people. I mean, I saw uh, my kids and their kids were like brother and sister, okay? Grew up that way. But they... Uh, they wanted to be close to the Sri Singh Sub, as, as we called it. You know, they wanted to be close to the YB. So that's what happened. They ended up going there and they, everybody knows who they are and, 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 and they're still there and they're, they're good people. We just don't see eye to eye on some things now. Um, but, but so anyway, I moved back to Florida because my mother was having some operation and we figured, all right, let's go down there. We went back to Florida. I don't like Florida. I never liked Florida. You know, I mean, I was stationed in Florida in the military. I graduated from high school in Florida. And I, I started Baba Siddhichan, you know, doing this yoga in Florida. But now I got to go back because of responsibility with family. And um, so I'm pouring. Remember, I'm back in Florida again. So I'm like, you know, <laughs> it's like, wow, I'm back here again. And he says, the serious thing side wants me to buy the house adjacent to Baba Siddhichan. Will you move into it and pay the rent? <laughs> All right. That was fine. Our kids could grow up together. This is, okay, this is a 1980. Um, but 1983 comes along and Gurbachan Singh says to me, you should send Sapavankar to India to go with Sapachankar. They were sisters, were really close. And I said, I can't afford you that. He goes, I'll take care of this if you take care of this. And so he helped out. I said, okay, you're being a good god godparent. And uh, we did. Um, that was 83. Subhavan was eight years old. I would not see Subhavan car for two years because we know what happened between 1983 and 1985. It was 1984. And even though they were in Masuri at 8,000 feet in the Himalayan, you know, foothills, they had to deal with what was going on in the lower levels in Delhi and Amritsar, you know, with the massacre that happened in the Golden Temple two years not seeing your daughter and 
Sri Swami car went over the year she went over in, in 84. Wow. So I, I saw her nine months later, but I didn't see Sapatman for two years. So when they finally came home, it was like, oh my God, this is incredible. Uh, so happy to be family and do things together and see our daughters. And they were just great. I had gone over in 85, by the way. My, my wife saved some money up. She said, I want you to go visit the kids. So I flew over, went over with Garage Car, Arinian's mom. Yeah. Uh, own car was the same age as my daughter. They were going to school in Masudi. Went with a garage car. Uh, went with, it was like 20 adults from the East Coast and I guess maybe the, in Canada. And we went over and they had 120 kids at the school. And we nobody could go to the Punjab because of what was going on you know, the previous year. So it was decided some people were going to go to Rishikesh or something like that. But the other choice was Hemkunsad. And I was really into Guru Gobind Singh. So I wanted to go to this mystical place, Hemkunsad. So I did. And I climbed those thousand steps with my daughter helped me just, just 20 steps and go 20 steps. And I did that, you know, to get to a thousand steps until I got there in the, in, in the early morning. And that was the most incredible experience, wow. uh, wonderful experience. And um, so that was my first time. Now, flash forward, winter solstice, 1985. My wife and I bring a gift, as you always did, to YB. And it was for BBG, too, because they were both there. And BBG looks at me and she goes, aren't you a sing-song? And I said, no, BBG, I'm not a sing-song. And she says to him in Punjabi, and he looks at me with those eyes like he's looking at your aura. I don't know what he was looking at. But he said, yeah. And she says, you are now. So on Christmas Day, 1985, I become a minister, which shocked some foreign because remember in Florida, winter solstice, where the host ashram is Baba City, and all these people are like, how'd that happen? He became a minister, and um, so it was an interesting thing. <laughs> but uh, that was that was that was interesting. So now, just for clarification, back then he just titled people. There weren't things you did. It was just like you're this, you're this, and it kind of created this internal. Or he would say things like, "This guy is a perfect side. Now you need to do a really good side in talking to the quote unquote Khalsa Council. This guy." He's going to be a Mukia Singh side now, or this guy ran a, a, good, a, a region or he'd make him an overall regional thing. And the way you look back on it now, it was like multi-level marketing. It was like a it franchise. It reminds me of that. I was in the industry for a decade and it reminds me of how you pit your leaders against each other. Yeah. How terrible that is. But interesting enough. So, okay, now this is um, 1985 and, um, my, my close friend, Shiva Singh, who I knew he, when he was in Ithaca, New York, he was married, his first wife, and they would come down and do seva. Brother and sister of Guru Raj. I mean, brother of Guru Raj. Karp. Brother of Guru Raj. And, and so they came down, stayed at our house and said, this is where CBB comes into play. Okay. So they come down in 85 and said, are you going down to Fort Lauderdale to Tulsa Council meetings? Because YB is starting a new company. They didn't have a name for it. And he needs salespeople. You should be there, Sadhanam. And I said, I wasn't called. Nobody asked me to do it. So they went down. That was December of 85. April of 86, I got a call from a guy in LA. His name was Sirisant Singh. SSS, like Siri Singh's not, right? SSS, Sirisant Singh. Um, he calls me up. I don't know who he is. <clears throat> he says, this is Hanuman Singh. I heard you're a really good salesman. I said, well, who told you that? He said, oh, a few people I've talked to. And I wonder if you'd be interested in being the Southeast sales manager for um, CBB. And I go, what's CBB? Then he told me, Community Business Bureau or 
brokers, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, what's the commit? What's the pay? Because, you know, here I am. I'm like, I'm going to drop everything and do this. Fortunately, my wife was doing a, a, a her own business, but I went, all right, what is it? He goes, it's commission only. Again, multi-level marketing. It's like, oh, what is, what is the, well, you got this much money coming in from Golden Temple Bakery, Wagyu Chews, and some four bags of granola. And Yogi Tea is like, you might get like, I don't know, 50 to $100 a month commission on that because it's only one box of tea. And then Nonix Cookies has four t- cookies, which they don't even exist anymore. Mm. And that was it. And then I got a call from a woman called Krishnakar. Everybody knows who Krishnakar is. And she says, I'm the, I'm the president of Soothing Touch Sunshine, and I just fired the broker in the Southeast. I'm hiring you. So now I've got the four businesses that are part of the natural foods industry. And I have to go out and start making appointments and going around. And I'm in the South. I'm in the deep South. And so I have no problem. I'll go out and do it. And uh, I did it. And I got to know the distributor, the main distributor. I got to build relations with retailers. And uh, word got out in the industry that if you want someone in the Southeast, hire the guy with the turbine, hire South Hanum. And so I got, I was the first person to represent kettle chips on the East Coast, um, 1986. I was, I don't know if you heard of Morinu Tofu, but it was from Japan. I represented Morinu Tofu. And then other companies started hiring me. I represented every company in Oregon, all of them, Nancy's Yogurt, Kettle Chips, Oregon Chai, Garden Burger, all of them. So my region in the South, which is not exactly, I'd say it's not new, it's not California. It's not Southern or Northern California. Right. It's not even the Northwest. It's not, it's not no, the Northeast. It's, it's like the health food industry, you know, vitamins and stuff and i'm selling a thing called yogi tea to people who went get out of here mm. you know so i knew how to build relationships so people who might have got along with this person who was not want to see me talk to that person hey this is great stuff and so networking and yeah. that helped you know and uh so my part of the country we had 12 people in the country Sheba was in the northeast i was in the southeast and then there were people in the west and in the Midwest and the Southeast, and everybody was responsible to do and have those same Yogi Tea, Golden Temple, Soothing Touch. And I was getting more companies in the South. I was being hired by a juice company from Vermont and all these other, Alba Botanica, which is in the industry now, is starting out. All these people were wanting someone on the East Coast or the Southeast. And Shiva got a couple of companies. I got a bunch. And this is from 86 to 93, right? And 93... Oh, by the way, in 1992, I had an amicable uh, separation and divorce from my first wife after 20 years. Wonderful woman, fantastic mother, uh, awesome lady. But I fell in love with this other woman and, and we got married. And we're still married, almost 30 years now. And um, uh, her name is Amrit Kaur. And so we got married in 92 uh, and the Siri Singsab or the CMA, as he was called too in business, the Chief Management Authority, the CMA. He had many titles, people, Sir Singh Sahib, Mahan Tantric, you know, Yogi G. You know. CMA, that's a new one. Yeah, Chief, Chief Management Authority, that's what people called him because he ran all the businesses. He was the, the grand poopa, you know? And um, so he says, Saad Hanuman and Amrit will move to Roswell, Georgia, which is where Liptar is, and run the Southeast out of there and he then hired um, the man who was married to my first wife 
And I won't even go into that's a bigger story because it's a side story. But you know how you were talking to Tej? He goes, you have four siblings in 3HO and your Tej car had four. Well, I have an extended family that just goes on like, you know, tentacles. In 3HO. In 3HO. But I only have one sister in 3HO, but all these people, the Libtars, for instance, okay? Now, now is that, you, is your son-in-law Libtars' son? Only son, Sapir Singh. Okay. I was double-checking. Okay, I am so blessed. I'm so blessed. So, so, uh, sub, well, not my blessed, my wife is blessed. I mean, my daughter's blessed and my grandchildren. Well, if um, I hear correctly too, both your daughters married into children that were born in the Dharma and kids that they were raised with. Is that right? Exactly. So they oh, went to school with, that's I mean, not many people can say, you know, your daughter went to school with the man she married as a, as a young Toddler, you know, like babies. <laughs> yeah, and then and then because because uh, uh, Sabir and Sir, uh, Sabir were born in seventy four, and uh, Sarah was born in seventy one, I think. Yeah, he's he's like forty nine now, and and uh, and then Sri Swami was born in seventy six. So these two guys would end up going to school together, and then leave Midi Pity, and and even Sri Swami went to Guru Ramdas Academy. I think it was in uh, Dehradun before yeah. they moved to Midi Pity, and sh so they got married. In uh, 94, I get married and remarried in 92, live in Roswell, Georgia, live Tars are there. I'm running the business and I'm not just seeing Georgia or Atlanta and Savannah and Athens, Georgia. I'm seeing Memphis, Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee. I'm covering 11 states by driving. Wow. Nobody flew, you drove. And I was, but I was expanding the business and the footprint of our companies and represent in the deep South. With a turban on everywhere I went, I think because I'm white, that privilege carried me through because nobody really tried to, you know, what are you doing here? You got, you know, with that. So yeah. I didn't run into that. I didn't run into that. And, and then, um, so was there four years. Amrit and I had a wonderful place. We lived right near where the Libtars were and business grew. And then we had, uh, we got called from Gurdan, who is now running SGN. SGN becomes, takes it over CBB in 93. YB reconstructed, they rebranded, they changed it from this uh, only by commission independent contractor to now a business. So why do you think that happened? Because I think things were being found out with other businesses that there was some illegitimacy and maybe illegality going on and they had to restructure it because we were bringing in money. We were bringing in a lot of money. When you take all of those businesses now in 93, when they switched it over, I got a call from somebody from, you know, the California offering me a new position mm. as the Southeast sales manager, which I had already been since 86, but now I'm getting this new position. I said, what's the, what is this? He goes, we've, we, we haven't, did you hear about the new company we've started? And I said, what are you talking about? SGN. I said, what's that? City Guru Nanak. I said, wow. Okay. And so my wife and I, we had a Guru Granth Sahib in our home. I went, we took our Das, we took a hookum, and we decided we were going to let them have Yogi Tea and Sunshine and uh, Golden Temple. And we were going to keep the other 20 companies that we had grew over the last few years, you know, seven years. We had, we were doing really well, except 30% of what we made as a commission every month went to YB. 30%. In your CBB contract or in this no. SBN contract? There was no contract. There was no contract. He was the boss. It was in the contract with the vendors we represented. And they didn't like it. People heard about like, 
Why am I sending a commission all the way to LA when you're doing the job? I want you to hire more people. You need that money to expand for me. You know, that's what every business, legitimate business was saying. So they so had- What was your response to that? I said, look, do you like what I'm doing? Are you sad? Are you, are you happy with what I'm doing for you? Yes, but we want you to do more. I mean, I literally had, when contracts would get up, they would have to, they basically let me hire. Remember, I had that one person who was in, this, in Florida that took over all the stuff that I had built in Florida, and he was married to my first wife. And so he, so I had, oh, I've got, here I got Amrit. She's with me. She runs the administration part. He's running this Florida, and I'm taking care of the states. And nobody was saying like, but you're driving to Virginia and you're driving to Tennessee and Alabama. Are you happy? The sales are happening, right? The business is expanding, right? Uh, yeah. So I was able to kind of get them to trust me, right? And um, everything worked out at least to that point until, um, okay, 96, we're finishing, or 95, we're, we're finishing for four years of living in Atlanta. Go ahead. But this is CBB's ending and SGN is star. Have you agreed SG, to SGN already? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay. Okay. So and remember, I said also contacts for the listener. Like you know what these 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 entities really are, and you're representing lots of companies. But reiterate some of the companies you've brought to the map, as well as what companies within the Kulsa within Kit all this represents. Okay. All right. A company from uh, the first one I got was kettle chips. I called up then Nirbo Singh, who's uh, Cameron Healy. And I called him up and said, why aren't kettle chips on the East Coast? And he said, I don't have anybody represent me. I said, send me the four chips. I'll put them into distribution. And he did. Okay. So for seven years, I represented kettle chips. I got rep I got called by a, a, a body care line that had just started called Alba Botanica, a company out of Tokyo called Morinaga Nutrition or Morinu Tofu. They were unique because it was aseptically packaged and you could you could put it in all kinds of places in a store and it's not going to go bad. It doesn't have to be refrigerated. So I was going to, I did a lot of demos. So I would be a, a company in Vermont. What I'm trying to understand though, is all these different companies come to you. Yeah. You're the salesman that gets them into stores, right? right? right. So right, that right. they can be sold to consumers. Right. But you're right. actually just the sales regional manager, so to speak. And 30% of all the commissions you bring in go right to YB. And then you get a percentage of what's left over. Well, I get the, the, the differences for me to, to fuel my car, stay in a hotel. And a lot of times I slept in the car. I mean, you know, you're talking about, remember, you're talking about Yogi Tea before it became the Ayurvedic line of what it's you know, expanding from that one single box of tea to four teas and eight teas and 16 and 32. Golden Temple was four bags of granola and about, I don't know, several bulk granolas. And I got that into distribution. So you're building that and then you get these other companies and you're probably making, you know, maybe $10,000 a month and you're living on 7,000 out of that. you got to have a salary to take care of your family. And then you also have to pay your expenses. So that 30% was a big deal, mm. not having that. But remember, the mission is all that's important. Trust the teacher, trust the vision of the teacher. He knows what's going on and you do that. And everybody is, you know, that's it. So you do that. And so my wife and I were, we bought into it. I okay. mean, you know, and, um, and, then, um, and then comes, we were there for four years. We had a really nice life in, uh, in Roswell, Georgia. Everything was going great. And then we got a call from um, Guru Don who's now running SGN and he's in Brooklyn. And he said, seriously, I want you to move to Millis. <laughs> no, he said, yeah. 
Well, what happened was um, my friend Kurban Singh, who's no longer part of 3HO, wonderful guy, an awesome guy. He was offered, they closed down the Golden Temple Emporium. Remember, we worked together in, in Boston and Harvard Square. After 14 years, they closed that successful business down because Mahan wanted to kind of cut his losses, leases going up, and people lost their jobs. So now Kurban, who's put his heart and soul into this mission in that store, is now without a job. And so YB offers him $1,000 a month. And Mahan, uh, Kurban goes, what? $1,000 a month to live in Boston? I'm out of here. And that, that kind of broke him and he just left. He left everything. I stayed in touch with him, but he left. And so I called up and said, before you hire anybody up in the Northeast, move us back to New England. That's my home. I want to go back. And so they did. They paid our way. Who? Uh, Kit. Okay. You know, we were being funded by Golden Temple and the call security and all these companies who were making the money and they saw that, hey, we got to hold on to this guy. He's a gold mine. What I forgot to tell you, though, is when they changed the name, and I told you we took a hook and we said no. Remember we said no, and I said, we're going to keep our companies. You can have the 3HO businesses. You said no to SGN, keep, yeah. keep those. Yeah. Keep ours. yeah, but that didn't work go over too well because YB knew a gold mine when he saw it. And so he called me up at 4 o'clock in the morning from L.A. and said, son, I need you to do me a favor. And I went, yes, sir. He goes, I need you and Amrit Kaur to stay with us. We are, this is our, you know, my vision and you are going to da, 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 da. And I went, my wife began to cry and I went, yes, sir. And we just kept up. So now they've got us because without us, they didn't have much on the East Coast. And a lot of the other regions were not growing as quickly as we were. And so now if they put me in the Northeast, the Southeast is cooking. If they put me in the Northeast and they move Sheba, by the way, to Chicago, and he replaced this other guy who, who was kind of a weird, anyway, just Shiva replaced that person. They moved him. He had gone from Ithaca to Millis and from Millis to Chicago. And so he's in the Midwest and I'm, I moved up to New England and I'm in, I'm in, I'm in seventh heaven. I'm home again. I get to see blizzards and beautiful leaves on trees in the fall and all that history that I grew up with. And I'm like happy as a lark. And um, so I did that, but now our business is really growing. Things that I had only in the Southeast are now also on the East Coast because I'm in the North. And they said, well, if you're there, we're going to hire the whole East Coast, right? So now my job, as, as it was given to me, is not only do I have stores to see all over the six New England states, which is not as much as driving all over the South, but it's still a lot of driving, you know? Bangor, Maine is five hours from Boston. So once a month up to Bangor, Maine, you know? I made the best of all of this, but, but, uh, but we, we grew and... The key factor is the distributors were growing at the same time we were. There was no Whole Foods back then, not to the degree it is anywhere near today. People had independent stores. I, I helped stores grow. Uh, we watched stores go from small little stores to having two 20,000 square foot stores. And you know those are stores that are now Whole Foods. But we, we helped those stores in the South and then we had to do it. And there's a lot of co-ops in the Northeast. So working with those folks, there was a beautiful distributor in Vermont called Northeast Cooperative. I enjoyed that. Um, uh, the distributors on New England would eventually marry themselves or merge with distributors out West. Uh, and they became United Natural Foods or UNFI. And today they are the national distributor in this industry. Wow. Um, and so we were connected with them. Everybody trusted us. If somebody said, who do I hire on the East Coast? They went, you hire Saad Hahnemann, you hire Gurdon, you hire SGN, because we had built so much trust. 
And I will tell you, of all the things YB ever taught, the one that resonated with me is what makes a sales a, a good the sales successful. And I know that Gurganesh would agree with this too. The success of a sale is built on trust. That's it. Once people trust you, you can bring them something they've never heard of and they'll trust you and they'll buy it. So you better be bringing them the quality that they always look to you and that they trust you. And goodwill is also the other part of it. Those were words that YB said to a bunch of us. Shiva Singh was there and other people were there. And he said, trust and goodwill is what builds sales. I'm like, well, there's some pearls of wisdom that I resonate with. So I knew how to do this. And by the way, I have no, I have no formal sales training. You know where I started my sales training? You know where I learned how to sell? I'll tell you exactly. When I was 10 years old, my father said every Christmas, he would say, the movie, the TV, sh the, the movie's on and he wanted me to watch it. The Miracle on 34th Street, the black and white version. And I realized if you are honest with your customers, you send them to the, to the competitor, they'll come back. Remember, that's what happened in the Miracle on 34th Street. It was embedded in my consciousness. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. And I treated people that way and it resonated so it worked. So I'm now up in Millis and loving it, living on 17 acres of land, property. We've got everything. We have a good Wara. We are doing Sada together. Again, extended family, beautiful experience. YB would come every fall for what they called the fall yoga festival. And he would come and do his thing. And um, and I was just really enjoying it. And I started doing a lot of outreach interfaith work and stuff in the Boston area. Um, um, I think I wrote in my, um, my introduction to you that the highlight of being in the South was teaching in the prison. That to me was my high, high point of teaching Kundalini Yoga was teaching in the prisons. Um, and that, you that also was, began that quite early, I guess as early as like 1973 compared to when, quote, and I know um, George McMillan had talked about doing a really early prison program too, but before it became kind of like an official thing. I hate to revert back because we've gone so far, but let me just quickly tell you that's a great story. Samporin, the director of Baba City Chan, got a letter from an inmate in a medium security prison who was in there for armed robbery or something. Just medium security means you're not in there for rape, you're not in there for murder, you're in there for drug-related things or breaking and entering, things like that. So you're like a first offender type person, but you're still a risk. So they put you in what's called a medium security. It's a state prison. He gets a letter from an inmate, a gentleman who happened to be white and said, I want to learn how to meditate. Could someone from your ashram come? And some poor didn't want to do it. So he called me up and said, so how many saying you're going to go on Friday night to this prison? The prison was 80 miles away. I didn't have a vehicle. He said, just take the ashram vehicle, which was somebody else's VW microbus, and we'll pay for the gas. And I drove, uh, I'd leave it like 4.30 in the afternoon. I'd get there about 6.30 and the class would be at seven. Well, when I first got there, I had this one student. I said, why do you want to do yoga and meditate? He goes, because I really love Bruce Lee and I love martial arts and, and Bruce Lee meditated and I want to learn how to do it so I can put that in with my martial arts. I said, all right. And after a discussion with him, I kind of I sort of like fished him out of this where he was because I kind of intuitively knew where this was going. And I said to him, um, okay, for me to come back here and for us to pay for the gas and to be here and for me to teach, you need to have about five more students. And he said, oh, I can do that. I said, yeah, but three of them have to be African-American. They have to be black. Wow. And he went, 
And he said, I'm not doing yoga with no, you know what, N-word. And I said, well, you're on your own. I said, you're the one that wanted me to come. I'm not going. He said, oh, okay, well, I think I can fix it. So the following week I come back, he's got like 12 people in the class of which 80% of them were black. Wow. And so I have to, you know, I'm getting these people going. And that class lasted for two years. Nine of them got early releases from prison. Nine of them actually on their own, not because I, because they would ask a lot of questions. All they, when I would show up for a two hour class or Friday night, they sweated and they just got all their negativity out, learn how to do this stuff. And they also, nine of them out of 65 inmates who would come to my class every Friday night and nine of them got early releases. They call me up and they tell me, I just got early release to a work program, you know, three o'clock in the morning, they would call me at the house, the ashram. And uh, I, I stayed in touch with that one for about, well, I was 75 yeah, for about 25 years later, I got a call from this guy in Fiji, the original guy, the original guy who called and wanted us to teach a class. So he grew through the experience. I was really, it was really, it was just so amazing just to see that happen. That's so cool. My dad also teached in maximum security prisons in Arizona, so I'm familiar. I taught at Rayford Prison, which is near Gainesville. That's a federal prison, but it only was a couple of times because these people were so out there that they didn't want to, but the medium guys, they were like, you care about us. You're willing to drive that. In fact, they tried to get retroactively me paid by the state of Florida. They wrote a letter saying how much, you know, they had, it was, I think we were sponsored by the, uh, some, some like the Kiwanis club or somebody like that. So there was a lot, but then I got moved. Remember I got moved yeah. from there to this Cleveland thing. So, all right, back to Millis. Yeah, um, going back with selling, yeah. right? So anything is going great. Um, we're not really great, but everything's going good and I'm trusting the mission. And um, my wife managed uh, about four people in an office that ran the East Coast. Uh, we have about now, I guess we, have, I have nine people I'm managing in the Northeast. We have five managers of which one of them wasn't a Sikh. We had Gurdan, my wife and I, and my first wife became part of the company and her husband. So now we got those and we're pretty much running the East Coast and it's successful and everyone's going going along. Uh, we're being paid not that well. We're getting, now he gets 100% of the commissions, Yogi G. Who does, for, what, for selling what? Why, see, SGN is his company. So he's getting 100% of the commissions versus and in the CBB, he got 30%. The difference was I was an independent contractor. Now I work for the company. So now I'm being paid a salary. Oh. So I'm being paid about 45,000. My wife is being paid about 30 some thousand. You're not also getting a commission on your sales? No. It, well, uh, theoretically I was, but I wasn't. I, I saw, you know, every year you'd see, I can go look at my, I can look at my social security now and say, oh, it bumped up to 60 some thousand one year, but then it went back down. Like, what happened? So they started hiring people and paying, and they, you know, you can't get away with this kind of pay to your people that are going to be hired in the, in the real, out there in the real sales world. You got to pay them pretty good to stay, right? You got to keep, keep a salesperson, absolutely. So I was, I was bought and sold. I mean, I'm already bought in, hook, line, the sinker. You know, I'm devoted. I'm. This is a mission. Guramdas is, in, you know, covering for me. Everything told me that. Mm. Everything told me that. Mm. Um, yeah. So anyway, I was going to tell you a story about that song, one of those songs that I sent you, but um, that was when we lived in Atlanta. And, but that was an amazing story. But um, 
I can tell you that what I learned through this whole experience over the last 50 years is that the power of prayer really is, it works. And with the focus on just focusing on one thing, whether it was what you called Gurandas or what you called the Shabbat or you call the divine, or you, if you focus and really have that strong uh, devotion, I always found that it worked. It worked. I mean, things that I couldn't believe I would have otherwise failed or something would have happened to me. I always was able to come out of it and be successful. So there was legitimately a one, a great story that happened one night when I was driving from Atlanta to Gettysburg. Because if I remember my bio, I told you I did living history for 12 years. I was a living historian. I did uh, civil wars. That history is my passion. So I was driving. I finished my road trip and I left my wife back in Roswell and I was driving up to Gettysburg. And I got into rural Virginia, not over on the east part where the interstate is, but in the rural part of Virginia. And on a Thursday night, it, 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 I'm listening to this CD in my car, James Taylor singing Country Road live. It was great. I'm rocking out. And I'm just feeling it really good. And I look down at my odometer and it says, you're on empty. You're on empty. And I went, oh, no. And so... I turned the music off and I started chanting and singing, only me hearing it, you know, out loud. And then I saw a bank and I pulled, I only had, um, I think I had a shell credit card, but I didn't have any, and then I had a bank card, but I don't know if things work like they do today where you could get money. Yeah, you could get money out. But anyway, I drove into the bank and it said, we're out of cash. I got no money. I got the shell card, which means I got to find a shell station in rural Virginia, in the, in the, oh, oh, in the uh, you know, the Blue Ridge Mountain area. And I'm like, oh boy. And so I'm still chanting for an hour and a half. And that, that thing on the, the gas gauge went below empty. I should be for an hour. It's like that. And I'm, I should be, I should be bone dry. Wow. And I come over the crust of a hill and I see this shell station sign. I'm enchanting for an hour plus. I see the shell station sign. I pull in. I quickly pumped myself gas. It actually went over the amount that said it was in my tank. So I really was on bone dry. I don't know how that happened, except something just took care of me the whole way. Now, here's the funny part. I walk into the place where you pay. And this is when they had the knuckle breaker things. They didn't do it like they do today. They put your thing down and they like this, you know, with your hand and, and then you sign it, right? And they give you a receipt from that thing. So the guy comes in, doesn't say a word to me. I go into the, where he has it. I said, I am so grateful that you're open. Thank you so much. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't say anything to me. I, I, he does that. I sign it. He gives me a receipt. I said, thank you, sir, for staying open. He didn't say a word. Nothing. I'm talking to myself. I walk outside over the threshold of the front door and the lights on the shell station go off. The lights in the office go off and it's done. And I'm like, I, I literally broke down in tears. Oh, wow. I called my wife. I said, you're not going to believe what just happened. And I still, to this day, I was the only one there. So I, you have to believe that this was like the twilight zone yeah. to have, or like, you know, something like weird, but yet I felt really like, God, I was so taken care of. And I think that kind of stayed with me in India, stayed with me in all kinds of challenging circumstances. So that was a little vignette. Uh, I love that what happened that time, but now we're up here. Um, I'm in new England, 10 years. YB comes out every year does this thing, you know, always stays with the wealthy guy in the ashram. Um, we're all, again, save it ours, you know. And, uh, and then what happens is um, we start meeting as managers of SGN on the East Coast, and we decide 
How are we going to grow? We got to learn computer skills. We got to learn all this technology. We need to expand our company. And I said, well, I have an idea. There's a guy over at one of these distributors that really trusts us and like us. I, what if I asked him to come work for this? He carries with him a lot of weight in this industry. It'll really help us grow fat, you know, a, 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 a better. Verdon just, you sure? I said, yeah. Nobody really believed it could happen. But again, I had built really good relationships with people. And I went in to see him one day and he wanted, he says, go to lunch. And he, he goes, I would be honored to work with you guys. Well, now they're going to fly him out. This is 2002. They're going to fly him out to Anaheim, which is the big industry show out there. And I'm like going to be kept in the loop. All of us are. We bring our salespeople from the East Coast. We're all staying at these hotels in Anaheim. And I go, Gurdon, what's going on? What, what, what's happening? Did you meet with him? Did you did, take a care? We'll talk about it later. So I said, what do you mean we'll talk about it later? It was my idea. Why don't you share with me? We'll talk about it later. We're going to get on the bus and go to dinner with one of our principals. I said, I'm not getting on the bus until you tell me. He said, don't, he, he came very, he is a sociopath. The guy's a sociopath. I don't care who's listening to this. Gurdon is a sociopath. He is the mirrored image of what I finally realized was YB. Mm. And I think Tej said the same thing in your, your thing. Mm. You start to realize the narcissism, the, the sociopath. Well, Gurdon was my, my wife recognized it first. And then I started to realize the veil came down. I went, oh my God. Because what happened when you disagree with somebody like that, they shut down and they treat you like you're a non-entity. Mm. And that's what he did. Not only did he do that, but he set people out to try and find if they could get anything on me. Here's a guy who for wow. 16 years has built this thing on the East Coast. And now you're going to try to find a way to bring me down. And they couldn't find anything. So, so this was in, uh, I think, April of, of 2002. And by May, a company, one of the companies we represented offered me a job. And I said, you should hire my wife because she was making like nothing. And she was doing all the work. So she got hired and she boosted her salary up about 40%. And I stayed and they didn't see her go out the door. So she slipped under the wire and I'm still there until Gurdon basically demotes me. No. Tells, tells the people I'm managing, you're now going to be managed by this guy in the South, right? The guy who is in Florida. He's now going to manage the whole East Coast. And Gurdon, Sadhanam's so job is just going to be, he's the person to get things into distribution. So I figured I can handle this. I've been through so much in this organization. I've been so much, this is, I can do this. And I think I lasted about two months. Yeah. And then I realized, hey, sweetheart, my, my dog's coming, has to go to the bathroom. My wife's going to take her out. <laughs> um, we have a beautiful corgi. She's such a sweet. And, and so, um, so then what happens is I, uh, um, I finally realized I can't do this anymore. YB, this is 2002. YB is really not doing well, right? He's had surgeries and stuff like that. And I'm thinking like, you know, he's my teacher. I'm not going to, my wife and I felt the same way. I called up a woman who was part of his staff, City Cutham. She ran all the businesses. She was like the head of all of these businesses. And I called her up and I said, I couldn't call Gurdon because I didn't trust him, but I thought I could trust her. I later would find out I couldn't trust her either, but I didn't know. I just thought, I said, she said, Sadhana, you deserve a severance pay. You built this company. I said, I'm going to walk away and just take my salary that I already have, give me my last paycheck and any unused vacation time pay. And I, and, and will you sign them? They, they, she said, you really need it. I said, no. And then Gurdon calls me up two days later because he hears about it. He says, 
are you sure you don't want anything? And I'm like, like a fool. I said, no, I just want to walk away. So um, I had to sign a disclaimer that said, I will never say anything negative about anybody at KIT or SGN. And I did. And I said to the person who asked me to sign it, who was in LA, I said, are you guys going to sign it too? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I started going after a job in the industry. Remember, I was well known at that time and nobody would hire me. So I thought, this is ridiculous. And I heard from a vendor saying, the reason why you're not getting hired is because Gurdon has told everybody in the industry that if they hire you, these are companies that knew me, he would drop the lines. And so people were just growing and they didn't, they didn't know who to trust. Yeah. So I then I went, oh, I'm fine. Anyway, I went on from there and I wait, wait, before you keep going, why did you walk away without a severance pay or without trying to say I was, you owned a percentage of the company? Because I was naive and I was feeling like it was my teacher who gave us this opportunity. And we decided we're not going to take anything from him. Little did I know that all this time he was taking from us. Right, He was living off of us. All these things now that I've shared with you are a lot of processes that I've gone through to realize this stuff. This During is the-, the time you didn't know, you were just devoted and hardworking. And <laughs> did you have experiences in your sales career and in, with your family where you knew you were being underpaid and you just sucked it up and did it? Yeah. Yeah, like you lived from that place. You knew I remember all these steps along the way being sent to Washington, D.C. on a Greyhound bus by the then director, yeah. by all these places. You kind of like, I mean, you look back at it now. I said, what kind of a fool was I? I just went wherever they told me. Right. Right. You know, like I was on doing temporary duty in the military. I was like, you know, you get covered. Everything's covered. You're, we're paying for your trip up there and we're going to cover you on food. And you don't think about all the things like retirement or you know, all that. You still, Your children's education. I didn't come from, I didn't come from like an affluent family that had an inheritance. I came from, I was just this guy who was devoted. Hmm. And that's, so, so unfortunately um, for me. Yes, yeah, go ahead. you can't get, you can't get hired. Yes. So now, now bringing you back. So now you can't get hired. You find out Guru Don's bad mouthing or telling vendors not to hire you specifically. Yeah, so then I contacted YB because he, you know, I had a relationship with him too. And I said, you better get this stop to stop. And it immediately stopped. It stopped and just dead in its tracks. But it was the damage was done. A lot of people, and this really wasn't going to, I didn't know if I could do it. I felt insecure about what can I go from here? Um, so I ended up walking into a Whole Foods store near the ashram in outside of, you know, Millis. And the, the, Grocery manager said, what are you doing in here? Or how are you doing? Or I haven't seen you in a while. And I said, hey, can you put me to work? And he said, there's a new store opening up on Hingham, which is in Cape Cod. And you know the manager because he just moved from another store. Go down and see John. And I went down there and he came out of his office. So I'm like, what are you doing here? I said, put me to work. He said, I don't have any management positions. They're all filled. I said, put me in any position. He said, where do you want to work? I said, I'll do customer service. Done. So now I'm working at Whole Foods in this beautiful store in New England. And nobody said, well, you can't wear a turban. No, everybody knew me because I was in the industry, right? So um, I was happy. It was a long drive to get there every day, but it was fantastic. It was great. And then uh, um, then what happened is that um, we had an opportunity to move to Portland or actually move to the West Coast. We could have lived anywhere on the West Coast. We thought, wouldn't this be great? We have grandchildren. Um, our daughters live in Eugene. Your daughters are both living in, in Eugene, uh, Eugene. Eugene. And were they yeah. working for Dharmic companies this whole time? Yep, yep, yep. Golden both, Temple. 
both team. their kids and their their husbands? Oh, oh, they they worked at different times for call security, for tag security, um, and then Golden Temple and Yogi Team. Okay. And so we decided, I, w- I came out here with uh, my wife and I, Amrit and I flew out here and we went to Seattle. They had three stores in Seattle, Whole Foods did. And they had one store in Portland. And the three stores in Seattle said, we'll hire you right now. And I thought, well, that's going to be a long drive from Seattle to visit family in Eugene. Portland's two hours difference. And my wife, who is now the West Coast sales manager for a company that, that, that she got hired by, they had the one, that's how we got moved out here. He paid our way to get out her her job her job wow. and so she has to be near a big airport in portland is a big airport now comes another chapter of my life what am i going to do now because um the whole food store in portland was uh, only store and they didn't have an opening so one day around december of night of 2005 my wife says to me why don't you get why don't you go down to the airport and apply for they're hiring at tsa mm. and i'm like what why would i do that Sahamin, you'd be really good at this. And then I put, I, I left a part of my story out that's critically important. In 2001, I was in New York City when 9-11 happened. Not because I lived in New York City, but because I had a doctor I had to see because of a frozen shoulder. And I moved, I drove on, on September 10th, wow. 2001, from Boston to New York. And in the night I ride in, the skyline's there, the World Trade Center's there. The next morning, you know what happened. And I'm in New York. So... So I was there until the 15th. So I'm, I knew that when this position happened, that if I applied for this job, if I got it, I would be an asset to our community because I would be in a major airport and I'd be looking the way I do, you know, we, and, and so I, I applied and it, it was so easy. I, when I went in, it was like, this is no problem. I can do this. Um, and I did, I got hired in May of uh, 2006. And immediately after I got hired, I get a call from the Department of Homeland Security in Arlington, Virginia, and then an hour later from the Transportation Security Administration in Arlington, Virginia. This is right near the Pentagon is where their headquarters is. They call me up and said, we need you. I found out I was the first Sikh American, first turban-wearing Sikh, to work for this new agency wow. that had started after 9-11. And they wanted me to train everybody. They wanted me to be involved in all that stuff. So my the managed the guy who ran the airports in Oregon uh he you know every state had a regional person who ran it they were um you know a government official that ran it and he really took to me when I got hired he took to me and he says I like your positive energy and everything he said I want you to be part of the this um council I was never on the culture council but I got appointed to the national advisory council to TSA so now I'm one of 65 people in all the United States and all territories to be in what was called the National Advisory Council. And I would be there for two years, going back and forth from Portland to Washington, DC and staying there a week and doing projects and being involved in that. And then also when I came back to Oregon, I had I was training people in law enforcement as much as the FBI and other things about who we are because nobody knew back then. In those early 2000s, you know, just because Bin Laden's picture was on the TV, everybody started freaking out Who's that guy with the turban? Oh, you're a threat. And I had to change that in the little way I could. So um, it was an interesting experience being part of TSA and having on the front line and having people take, you know, have their video cameras up filming you and or saying, I'm not walking in with a terrorist working for the government, you know, and all that stuff. But I worked there six years and um, and then I left when I was just about turned 62. And I thought, well, who's going to hire me now? 
after it was a, it was a good experience for the most part, but I, I decided that I would retire. So from the age of 62 until I was 63, I was pretty much living on social security. And my wife, Armour called me up one day and said, you want to go back to work in the natural products industry? I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, cause she worked for this other company. And she said, there's a job opening for this thing and you could do it with your eyes closed. So I came back, I got social security to freeze, you know, that stuff. And, and I had to go back to work. And, um, and then I started, and I've been with that company now for in July, it'll be nine years or eight years, excuse me, eight years. And I, she's been with the company longer than me. So, um, but it is pretty much just like it was in those old days of SGN, we represent some of the same companies that we pioneered back in the 80s and 90s and 2000. And so now this company is a national, what, what SGN could have been and never came to be a national entity. And it just, you know, it just, but, but now I'm working with this company and it's sort of a semi-retired position. It's a, I have a wonderful uh, boss who lives in Boulder and, uh, we have a mutual respect for each other, and I'm one of the older people in the company. And um, not but, a Dharmic company, just to be clarifying. Oh, not at all. No, okay. no, no, no. Okay. No, I'm, I'm, my, my wife and I are the only two Sikhs who work for the company. Okay, I was just clarifying. No, no, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So you know, you you speak about you know being the pioneer of things from the early, and I'm wondering if you can give us some perspective on like what are the sales you brought it from from when you started these early pioneering get health food into the markets, bring being a health food distributor, mm-hmm. salesman, um, to then what were the end result numbers financially that the companies ended up at? If Can you give I us still, comments? Sure. I still remember the numbers. Um, Yogi Tea was about averaging $50 a month commission when I first started in 86. Golden Temple was about $600 commission, existing sales. Sunshine Soothing Touch was about $2,500. They were the big company. Soothing touch with the sunshine oil. Sunshine, so, yeah, because they had sales in the region and it was established. So I was, so I figured I could do this because I had like thirty, thirty one hundred dollars existing commission. I could grow it from there. But distributors, the word of mouth got out there, so we ended up getting a lot more companies. So all those companies started to add up, and in the beginning, like I said, it was all based on commission, and part of that went to uh, kit to YB's thing, and we. Um, 30% of everybody's percent of our commissions went right to kid. We got what was ever was left. And so uh, the, I can only use it as a reference point. Yogi T when I left the company was probably paying combined with golden temple was probably paying about $15,000 commissions a month. So from where it was, remember $600 for golden temple, $50 for Yogi T is now. And the one that was driving those sales was Yogi T ironically sunshine was gone. Soothing Touch was no longer existing as far as the industry goes. It was taken over by another competitor, or Acacia. You, you used to see sunshine everywhere, Soothing Touch. Every, it wasn't just a health food thing. It was in everybody, but no longer. So Golden Temple became the number one granola on the East Coast. I don't. I mean, it was also strong in California, but in Oregon and the West Coast. But we became their top region. Yeah. And so, yeah, go ahead. you say we a lot and I appreciate that in the collective energy of community consciousness. But I also just want to put the lens back onto you that you were a top salesman. You pioneered bringing uh, brands into the health food industry that didn't have distribution and they ended up on the map. The efforts and the relationships that you created over these years is what really brought a lot of this forward. Is that not correct? I think that that's. 
that's true. Also, my wife, too. She was, I mean, we were a dynamic duo. We were really, people in the industry loved my wife. You know, they loved her energy and they loved it. She was the person who really made me look good. Because if I put an order out, I'd call her from Nashville. Here's an order for a store. She'd put it in. And so everything was followed through. There was no like, what happened to that order I gave you? It was always done. My wife was like, when we left Atlanta and went to Boston in 96, they had a going away party that was organized by the distributor and all the brokers in the region that were competitors and key retailers came and they had a vegetarian banquet. They picked us up in a, a what they called a limousine. I was roasted and she was toasted. <laughs> and we still have that going away thing. So it was really a, so when I say we, really my wife and I, Okay. Uh, we did it together, but also people who came along afterwards, we also were part of a mission. Right. Everybody had the focus. You were able to convince people, this is us. Even though you weren't telling people like, I only make this money. You were just doing what you did. It would all come out eventually because eventually, you know, patience pays, you know, it was going to happen. Well, it didn't happen. Of course, uh, the way you pushed it was going to happen or you expected it to happen. But um, the, the uh, uh, you know, working, after I left all that, and then YB passed, uh, and things went, I, I didn't think about all that after a while. It wasn't present with me. It was more like, just be you, do what you do. I, I really got into the history thing, and I was really doing a lot of research and meeting a lot of incredible people in the hit. So that was my passion. It took me over here. And if, if I was asked to give a lecture on Seeky because I stood out, people would say, can you come to my school? Could you come to my private academy? Could you come to my college? Could you come here? And then also with SGN, I mean, excuse me, with uh, TSA, I was highly visible there because I'm the first. And then they brought in a few other, you know, who were from Indian lineage. They came in in various airports in the country. But I, uh, I, was, uh, I, was, I was very highly visible. And so I, I, the way I looked at things, uh, Gurdh Nishan, is that I wasn't representing me. I was representing the Sikh path. Absolutely. And wherever I went, people had to, that was the touchstone. They were see maybe, maybe they would meet a, a, another Sikh somewhere along the line who was maybe had darker skin than me, you know, because there were more of them than there are of me. But it was like they were looking, they, whatever you did, you didn't represent just you. You were part of 30 million people, and of which maybe... 750,000 were living in the US and Canada, you know, another 750,000. So you were looking at this as like, I am the, uh, I have to be always the best at what I do. I have to be what I say I'm going to do and I have to keep my word. And so I was, I, I can never look back with regret. That's, I was able to live my life. You know? What I'm trying to feel into is when is it? It sounds like you walked away, you wanted to do that just to kind of keep it clean, you know, and you moved on and you started doing other jobs. And when was it that you started to really reflect on the, that this is financial predatory abuse? Well, years, years after we left, okay. as I was getting older, I left when I was, when I was uh, 52. And when I got into my, between then and the sixties, when I got in my sixties, I started every once so I'd get like, really annoyed. And I say to my wife and other people who would listen to me, I'd say like, why did I not take a severance pay? Why did I let them do this? And why did, you know, I kept asking those questions over and over again. Um, but it is what it is. You know, what would happen is we always would be all right. Somehow we would, we would make it, you know, it wasn't, but there was never what, you know, you always thought like, what if we had that money put away for retirement? What if we had you know, we lived in an ashram, just toss it up for that experience. You live with an intentional community and you did, 
you just did Seva and just, but it's hard to rationalize. Then you find out that he was living off of us. That's how I see it now. And I, I look back and I see like those who are now, you know, defending this and supporting this and ignoring the challenge, the, the, the other, they're ignoring people that are telling their story, which is really what I'll concur with Tej saying, I'm really glad that you're doing what you're doing. Because if you give people the chance to tell their collective stories, you're going to have a whole, like you said, a tapestry of stories. And I'm not out to badmouth other folks that I don't agree with. I'm, I'm, I'm Everybody's going to come to their own realizations, maybe. Um, but, but I do know that I have to be true to myself. And I'm very grateful to God and Guru that my daughters and my son-in-laws, our, our daughters and son-in-laws and our grandchildren are amazing, are just amazing. And, you know, I've heard the stories. I heard it when you did those interviews. My kids didn't, I actually have been told by my daughters, we are grateful that we got that experience, that we got to go to school and the we, they made the best of it. So did my son-in-laws. They, they, they have other issues, you know, that, that happened, but it had nothing to do with being abandoned or pushed away or whatever. They, they have other issues that they dealt with. And, and, uh, and but, uh, so I'm very grateful. I mean, somehow by God's grace, we, we, we turned out, we're healthy, we're happy. Yeah. And we're, we're still trying to be holy. But, <laughs> so but, if I hear you correctly, you know, this this piercing into your awareness of like, wow, he was living off of us all these years. That really happened in March 2020 around that time when these story like that really cracked it open for you to be yeah, that, to that crystallized. Yeah, that crystallized a lot of stuff. And it has sense. And since you hear other people tell their stories, you start to realize like, wow. These, they're, these, these, uh, the second generation, they really, no wonder, no wonder they went through, you're one of them. No wonder people went through, they had all these things that just like, what's going on? This is not right. Isn't that when, you're, when you're a young person, you know, and you have ideals, you look at your parents, are they your role models? You look at your, you know, all this stuff. And is it doesn't, if you're calling yourself and you're doing, but it's not jiving, it's not all matching up. And then you hear about this other stuff that's so intense. I mean, I remember, you know, Tej Singh saying what cracked it open for him. Well, I think just that was, that was part of it, but that wasn't what really, that wasn't all of it, but it was enough to get me to really, whoa. You mean the sexual abuse of the women? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I know some of the, you know, the people and I, but I don't. Young women of our daughters. I find out that that's not, but there's so much more here because. That story that Tej talked about buying that house in Toronto, that beautiful home, and then him putting $7,500 and then cashing it out two months after he left in 88, if I remember correctly, and he made a half a million dollar profit. If, if things were transactional, everything was transactional, why were you kept in the business when you wanted to leave back in 93? Because you were bringing in something to, to this situation. Right. And, and when the thing wasn't gonna work anymore, they could cut you loose because they'll go on to better other things. You know, they didn't need golden temple and Yogi tea anymore because first of all, after he passed, they sold golden temple, those who were in charge and Yogi tea got sort of stopped in its track. And now it's the big company, right? It's international, you know? And, and so a lot of, a lot of these things were just starting to come into play. I, I don't have uh, all the answers to it, but I realized the story of our life. I feel that, um, we were very fortunate that we did what we did and we enjoyed what we enjoyed and we 
did accomplish the mission, which was to spread, you know, honesty and integrity and, and uh, goodwill and trust to everyone we interacted with. That was really the mission for us. And even though he might have said that, he didn't live up to his own teaching, whether it was with women or the children or the youth or anybody else. I mean, I, I told you in my, my thing that, you know, I saw the way people of color were treated in this country, in this organization. I saw the way um, some of my friends were treated uh, who were African-American. I saw, I saw that in the 80s. I, I was like, this is, I mean, it got, I saw it. It was right in front of me. People were using the N-word. They were, you know, treating people less than just because of the color of their skin. And then I saw the homosexuality and that was being marginalized too, because you know, these people are this or that. And I was like, what is this? I mean, there's nothing that we're taught. Forget Yogi Bhajan. There's nothing that Guru Nanak taught or any of the 10 Gurus taught or any of the saints that we call part of our scripture, the city Guru Granth Sahib. Where does it say that homosexuality is bad or evil or, or that, people of color are separate. It was all about inclusiveness. It was all about oneness. It was all about the human race, not one race and another race and another race. Well, so. ideally, but not in practice. It, it, it's getting that way, though. I think from talking to um, some people, like that they're young people, the younger groups are starting to make Sikhi become much more, hold them accountable, not just in 3HO. Sure but also in the greater Sikhi community in Vancouver, Canada, or even in India, I'm seeing more and more women, you know, taking a stand saying, I am equal with you, you know, and, and playing harmonium and singing and doing Gurbani and some of them wearing turbans, some of them, you know, it's not, but I just say that. It's not, yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm just more yeah. trying to get the perspective of when these things were happening in our community along these decades, yeah. the seventies yeah. and the eighties and the nineties, you know, and Kate Feltz lawsuit and the time magazine article and, you know, directors, you know, big people leaving, whether it was, you know, why guru or why gurus or, you know, just different people like as a, devoted person growing the mission you're articulating a personal mission that you lived up to but the mission was like a painted picture that you know had a lot of people devoted to it and obviously we're finding out a lot more so i, I don't think, i don't think people really knew that sgn existed outside of yogi bhajan's entourage i don't even think they knew they just knew oh you work for yogi t or you were for Golden Temple. They didn't see us as we were invisible to them. Even though we were doing these things, they didn't see us. I, I, when they had the court case here back in the 2000s and I was living in Portland, I went to the hearings at the court. And this is about who was going to win and who, uh, who was going to take ownership of these companies. Uh, well, one of the women, I won't name who it is, but from L.A. said, so Hyman, didn't you work for CBB? I said, well, I worked for, yeah, in SGN. Well, you have a story to tell. I said, I said, well, yeah. And he, she goes, she goes up to somebody who was there, I, one of those people. So Hanuman needs to go on the stand. He needs to tell the story about SGN. And you go, no, we don't want any of that. We don't, you know, they, in other words, they kept it under the rug. They didn't want people to know that there was another thing that existed. I gave you a list of some of the companies that were under that kit umbrella. We were one of them. And we were, remember, he started this company back at Winter Solstice 1985. And I got hired in April of 86. And he says, we're going to grow this from just the health food industry to conventional everywhere. We're going to be in Safeway. And, you know, that was his goal. He wanted to make 
He one time asked me, what's your territory? He said that to me. He said, what's your territory? I said, my territory is from Bangor, Maine to Puerto Rico. He said, no, it's not. Your territory is from Bangor, Maine to Argentina. Mm. He was thinking like, I'm going to run the world. Mm. We're going to sell. Yogi T does that. I mean, he, he took that, he took, he had that, but it was all about his, his thing. He was going to take it to the level that satisfied his needs. The rest of us were just, you know, like he offered Kerbon back in 1993 or, or 96. I'm sorry. I'll pay $1,000 a month. What is going on here? You, you've got, you should be giving people a fair wage, a good wage, a, a ability to grow. And if they're producing and they're making like in any other company, you come up for a review, you get a raise. You get a raise. Standard. We didn't get, we didn't get, you know how many reviews I had in 16 years? Mm-mm. One. One, never had a review because every time they just, it was a more formality. They never took that. And, you know, they might've done it with people who they hired that weren't part of the community. They hired outside, you know, because we had to have more people selling. It was the demand was there. When, oh, you want to get back to this other thing. All right. Give you an example. Cliff Bar. We got hired in 1996 by Cliff Bar. They had four bars. They're in Santa, they're in Berkeley, California. The existing commission on the East coast was $5,000 commission. When my wife and I left in 2002, the existing commission was between seventy-five to one hundred thousand dollars a month. A month. What? Yeah. So if you look at if you got all your bags and that eggs in that basket, and you're hiring people, and you're not paying, you know, the people who pioneered things and giving them, you got a hundred thousand dollars or seventy-five. Let's say it was seventy-five thousand coming in for just that company, and we got forty companies we represent, big companies, wow. Annie's Homegrown Pasta. Kettle chips, uh, go, uh, organic Valley family farms. It's 2,000 family farms across the country. We helped them when they were only 100 farms. Now they're 2,000. So they were growing and we were getting, uh, we were being paid like dirt wages. And, and he was, so if you're, not, if you're bringing in on a monthly basis, three, 400,000, well, let's say 200,000 plus in commissions and it all goes to kit. And then they pay you, you know, that first, uh, 86, between 86 and like 90, mid 90s, we had no insurance. We had no retirement. We had nothing. We just got what we got. But then they realized, oh, well, we got to treat them like we treat our employees at Golden Temple and Yogi Tea. So they, they gave us a retirement, a 401k. They had a health insurance plan we had. And we had that, but it was enough. And you had to do that because you can't attract people into a business if you're not taking care of them. But also right? because there's employment laws, right? Yeah, that's right. They were legitimately a business that had to go by the law, right? Right, by a so, real law. <laughs> by real laws, yeah. Corporation, <laughs> right. So anyway, that's that's really comes down to is he he was really doing what he did. And you hear about the stories now of all those things that we got are shocked with. We heard about what you what you alluded to. His lifestyle was his lifestyle. On the on the front end, he was the serious sing son. He was Yogi G. He was this respected Sikh world teacher who met with popes and generals and politicians and had the trust built all over the world with all this stuff. But what we found out was in the back room, 
He was happy. Who was paying for him to live and go to these places to fly here and fly there? Who was paying that? It wasn't but just he's the- lavishly in Beverly Hills for lunch daily. Exactly. Or goes to buy watches, that, you know, nice watches and gold watches and, and all of that stuff. And the staff all they lived in luxury. They all had, you know, they might have been used Mercedes, but they had good cars. And somebody would ask him, like, sir, you why do all the staff have Mercedes? He goes, because they're a safe car. If they get an accident, they'll be, you know, they'll be okay. You know, he had a rational re- reasons for everything. And um, yeah, so, um, but his, his legacy, he always said, he always said to these people, <laughs> I went to two of the three men's courses. It was only supposed to be one. I went to the first one it was in Boston. I went to the, I didn't go to the one in LA, but I did go to the one that was in Espanol. There was three, um, all the things that he said, he said, you know, you either leave a lineage or you leave a legacy, a lineage or a legacy. And so we're thinking his legacy is, you know, this humble yogi who on the outside looked like he was a very successful businessman, but on the real inside, Kacheras, simple turban, humble man, sweet yogi, da, 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 da. I don't have that view of him anymore. Mm. And I, I have to say that if, we all we all went through what we went through, everybody. Uh, but I came out of it thinking like, now I see that he was he was using everybody. He was a master at one thing that I know I will say to this day, Yogi Bhajan, Yogi Harbhajan thing was a master at manipulating, keeping circles within circles within circles within circles within circles so that this guy over here didn't know what this guy's doing and da 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 da. He was really good at that. And he had that energy that he could over, you know, that, that thing that we look back now and say, who would, who would even listen to that? You know, my grandmother, when she first saw him, she went to a lecture and with my mother, my mother thought, oh, he's pretty neat. And my grandmother, her mother said, no, no, he's not. He's a, he's a, he's a con man. She she was on to him and she was in her 80s and I I was like in my 20s and I'm like grandma come on, so uh, you learn you you know you learn it's what karma is you have to go through life and you learn your lessons and hopefully you do learn them you know and you come out the other side but I'm very grateful I'm grateful that we could have this chat I hope I didn't overdo it but <laughs> you haven't at all I just want to say just how grateful I am for you to um to share this lens I think it's a very important lens for many reasons but number one just to really bring the reverence of Siki and and kind of the thread from the beginning to the end that has kind of been a continuum of your life but more to really put a a shine on the financial abuse and predatory behavior that is a common theme that we're noticing and like what you're saying SGN's under the radar all these other things are happening nobody knows you know and I remember being young and my older brothers worked for different companies or, you know, their friends and, you know, Rama or Prab or whoever the people working for Golden Temple or Kid. And all I remember hearing the older kids talk about was, and they were adults, young adults, was just terrible wages, terrible business practices, you know, being treated like crap, like the last place you'd want to work for is a Dharmic company. Like, and I'm like young, you know, so these things were permeating and yet devotion kept people so blinded 
in one day, in one day, I had five people in LA that were going to be my boss. They were going to run the whole company. They let go of the original guy. And then it was this guy or that guy or Ron Beersing, his, his eldest son. These yeah. people are going to be in charge. And I went, who's in charge? It's like he, he kept moving them around. Oh, that's not going to work. And this is not going to work. And this turns out that maybe that's what a sociopath is like. You know, I just kept trying to plug holes and do this. And I'm I'm like, they, they didn't want me to do anything at, above a certain level because I was on, you know, they didn't, they knew that I would stand up for something and I would challenge them. If it was out of place, if it was, if it was out of place, it was, it was wrong, you would have put the cog in that wheel because they knew you were building healthy relationships that were, yes, so, so you were that, like the cash cow or the golden goose. Well, I, I would say, yeah, I wasn't the only one though. I mean, I, like I said, my wife Amrit and I were a team and we Amrit. were, now, remember, we left in, in the spring of 2002. She went under the wire, and then I left in July. So it was already summertime when I left. One year later, not even a year later, eight, nine months later, my wife called me and said, SGN has just folded. Folded? Folded. So from 1986 to 1993, CBB. From 93 to 2003, SGN. Why did they fold? Because their biggest egg... Cliff Bar, let them go. After seven years, we had our companies, we had companies seven years, five years, 12 years, 15 years. We didn't lose companies. We had a had such a good people stayed with us. But when they lost that big fish, mm. they could not afford to stay in business. And um, and then and they lost they lost us. So when they, you know, we kind of realized we had a big play because if you take out that trust factor. You can only do smoke and mirrors for so long. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, and I've seen other companies do that too. People buy companies and they start changing the ingredients and they start marketing like, oh, yeah, it's that company that everybody wants, right? And then you start realizing it ain't the same anymore. And that's what was happening to this. It went under. It went under because of the way it was managed. And 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 nobody, nobody wanted to run this company because he was running it for himself. But remember, in 2004, he's gone. So nobody's going to want to run this. By 2003, he was going down and they were like, we don't want SGN. We don't even want Sunshine. Get rid of that. We, we only want, we'll take Golden Temple Yogi Tea because that's ours. And that's when they started doing this stuff of trying to, who's going to, keep, how are we going to keep this money? And they started paying themselves like huge salaries. I'm talking about the people that were running things in the back, you know? And that, that the lawsuits happened when they took exactly. everything and all that. So you're exactly. talking about pre-lawsuit. Right. So you see all that happening and you go like, well, I feel grateful that we got through this. You know, it was, uh, it was it's been a long, it's been a long uh, journey, but it was just like that one time that I prayed. Um, I, uh, the, the prayers were, I was covered. Everything got covered. Um, I, I knew many, many, many years ago, back when I was just in my twenties, that I never really crystallized it, but I heard it. That if we were chanting to Guru Ram Das, we really were chanting to Yogi Bhajan. That that word, Gurandas, became more like what we thought we were relating to. Remember, he was always saying, I'm not the guru, I'm the teacher. So, so say that again. You're saying, at what point did you realize that when we were chanting, when he was telling you about chanting Gurandas? That first thing I told you about back in 1972, when I went to that three-day weekend intensive at the ashram in Orlando, yeah. well, we were chanting to Gurandas. And the person leading the chant and his guitar turned to me and he said, Everybody here thinks we're chanting to this Guru Ramdas, but I think we're really praying to Yogi Bhajan. In other words, he is the Guru. 
and it's just a, a, a whole, I, I put that in the back of my mind because I, as I've spoken to other people who have come to this realization, I, who thought we were in a cult? Who thought that? Right. The people that left probably like Premka and people like that, but the rest of us who kept going, we weren't thinking that way. I wasn't thinking that way prior to March of 2020. I was thinking like legacy of this great teacher. I mean, he has a highway in New Mexico named after him. 100% of Congress honored him along with Mother Teresa and Dr. Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela. He's like this great yogi. Yeah. Right? And I had to convince Indian Sikhs, Punjabis, you know, he's not what you think he is. And you know what? I had to eat those words. <laughs> he was. He was he was worse. Yeah, they knew, especially the women. They knew. And um, it, mm. it, but it's, you know, like anything else, um, Gurnishan, you come to, I've come to the realization that there's karma. And by God's grace, this thing called the Sikh path is what I was anchored in. So when all this thing fell apart, it didn't fall apart. That didn't fall apart. Just like you said, you, when you interviewed um, Diana, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. When her first trip that she went to Harimandrasad, she did not want to leave. Yeah. That first trip that I went to Harimandrasad, when I left after being there a week the first time, I wept. I did not. I was. I, I was home. I didn't want to leave. Mm. And um. And so you know. I'm not the per- I'm not a perfect Sikh. I, I I'm just I'm just a person who this is this is where I relate. This is how I relate. I relate to the to the Shabbat Guru. I relate to the vibration. I relate to the Seva. I relate to the pure teachings. And even if and I will confront anybody born a Sikh, whether they be from the West or India or other parts of the world, if if we aren't living it, I've walked up to them and said, "What are you doing?" I've asked people. You, pl- you know how people in, in the Sikh thing, they have a Gurdwara and then they have infighting and then they start another Gurdwara, you know, they break away. Sure. And I'm like, you, you know, especially after 9-11, do you, do you realize that it isn't just you? You're not in India anymore. You can't play this game. You're in the United States. People are looking at you and you, the only way you're going to overcome that fear they have of this, who you, who they think you are is to show them. And I've, I've been really fortunate to connect with good true good six that have stood you know stood up for what's right and and have that reputation they have the legacy yes they have the legacy and and to me that's that's the blessing my my family is 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 a god we're doing we're doing fine we're 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 able to get through and uh Wow. Wow. Hopefully, wow. hopefully, hopefully uh, I'll make it to the final breath and it'll be still fine. <laughs> but well, anyway, you're is- amazing. Your outlook's amazing. Your work ethic's amazing. And the the service that you've delivered to other people along the way on your whole path has just been really beautiful to hear. Um, I, I also want to point out that the outlook of like, we just do the best we can. You know, we, we look at the best, you know, like we look for the best options within a shithole for for lack of a better word and and i i say that because i feel like collectively in our consciousness that was very much a part of the training that i remember growing up with is you you know you take it personally as your soul work you know Mm -hmm. like oh you know like this is just a part of the lesson i know i can do it and 
for me, the persona, my success as a saleswoman, my persona as very, very positive and bright and shining. At one point, I just realized, wow, I'm overextended in that. Like, this is wonderful qualities, but I've also not developed something else. Which is probably why somebody probably got you into multi-level marketing because they saw in you all of this energy that you would be great for this. <laughs> well, it's not only that, Sahanaman, what's interesting for me is that my awakening that our, that that I was repeating my patterns of, of abuse growing up, which, you know, I didn't call abuse. I thought my right, right. growing up was wonderful, you know, for in all intents and purposes. Um, it was that experience in that industry that was like, oh, my God, I'm repeating a cult. This reminds me of my growing up. And it was the first parallel, which was for me back in 2012. And it take many years. But, you know, through 2013, 14, 15, 16, I'm chipping away at a lot of the indoctrination that I didn't even really. Of course, you knew basic indoctrination, but I didn't know the big level stuff, the predatory financial abuse or the business corruption or the manipulating of people to each other or the sexual predation and how built into the hierarchy of the teachings and the circles and the leadership, how much it's infused in the whole running of things. And there might be people like you or a person like me that's living up to their integrity and being extra positive and doing all those things, but within the enmeshment of our family slash community, there's a lot of predatory behavior that's continually repeated because it was implemented by him. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we are, you know, you may have heard of this, this, this uh, concept before, but that we pick our parents. You know, people say, well, you know, I don't know what gender that person's going to be. We pick our parents. The soul chooses its mother when it comes to the world. Um, I still feel that's true. Um, I feel like, um, and then you, you're, you have a certain karma. You come into the world, you, you, you have to deal with it. Both, I, I think for my family, like let's, let's say my wife and I are now, we look at our, you know, we come from our families and we go, wow, our fathers did the best they could. And they weren't always, you know, you grow up, you have expectations of your family, but, but, or your, your parents, but father did the best he could. Mother did the best she could. We have to love them for that because that got us to us. Sure. And now we have to do the same thing for the next generation after us. And then the next after that. And that's what being a grandparent is. Um, this is what, this is what this is about. It's about taking what you were, you came in with and trying to make it even better even better. And um, so whatever I went through that was challenging, um, I probably didn't think it was that way. Like we didn't think we were in a cult. We weren't thinking like, oh, I'm in a cult because we saw the other guys as the cult, the Hare Krishnas and the Rajneesh and all that stuff. We said, God, those guys are cult. Why weren't we a cult? Because our teacher was connecting with people like, you know, you know, you know, all those well, the, people. But the biggest one I think is because he linked it into the Sikhi religion, you know? Exactly. But that's what gave him legitimacy. Yeah, there was legitimacy there. Yeah, and, and so that's, you know, but... Which is actually really common in high-demand groups, like in the studies of cults and high-demand groups. It's actually quite common to, to link an ideology that has a large historical lineage, so to speak. Yeah, so I, 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 a lot of people that I met along the way were involved in these other groups, but I always thought I wasn't like that. I, we had this because I related to the sick 
path. Yeah. And so, and I tell you a funny story. I was working at a whole food store one day. This is about 10 years ago. And a man walks by, he's Punjabi, but he's not wearing any turban or anything, clean shaven, walks by and he goes, oh, you are a Yogi Bhajan follower. You follow Yogi Bhajan. I looked at him, I said, I'm, this is 10 years ago. I said, I'm not a follower of Yogi Bhajan. I'm a Sikh of the Guru. He goes, oh, I know him. We grew up together. I said, good for you. This is 10 years ago. This isn't last, you know, fall or last spring. This is like, I went, I know. And I've, I've talked to my daughters about the same thing because they get challenged too. And they always relate to the Shabbat Guru. They relate to the Guru, you know? And it's not, it's, 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 it's not everybody's, this is not everybody's path. You know, I've learned over the years, this is not everybody's path. So I just want clarity there because I do appreciate and I love what you're sharing here that you related directly to the Shabbat Guru. Um, and yet your devotion, unrelenting devotion to Yogi Bhajan and the mission he painted and all of that remained intact. So where is, how is that reconciled? Well, um, like I said, when the, when the, when the Pandora's box opened, 10 months ago in my own personal life with my family that was the my wife was way ahead of me mm. she already suspected all this stuff she she saw it maybe it's the woman's perception her intuition but i was blinded by my devotion and i felt it was all i didn't i never saw him as my guru because i was able to separate the two you know he's the teacher maybe he interprets things that other people don't understand that are also Sikhs. You know, and then he had all this yogic stuff that he would talk about. And by the way, I was never a great yogi. I enjoyed teaching when I was younger, but I wasn't a disciplined person when it came to doing asanas and pranayamas. And, you know, I'm, you know, sure. so, but this path of going in and buying my, my head before something beyond a personality and listening to the vibration, whether I was at Anandpur Sahib or at a Gurdwara here, here, it all felt like I was home. It felt the way it was supposed to feel. And so, yeah. I, I, you, I've you're... heard this. I've heard this lens a little in the sense that Siki was more of like the connection, less of the yoga. And I think that's an important distinction because some people are the opposite. And um, yeah, yeah. But, and, and all is great in terms of whatever. Yeah, anybody who thinks that they're totally into the yoga, they just right. want that. Great. Fantastic. But my question for you, though, is. 10 years ago, you're replying to this Punjabi saying, no, I bow to the Shabbat Guru, right? I'm, I'm, my Guru is not Yogi Bhajan. And yet there was a level of devotion. So how did you, what was hit your relationship to him? And then the Guru is the higher part of that. You had that right relationship, it sounds, but you still had a direct relationship. Would you do anything he said regularly? I mean, is that a common thing at that time throughout your right, life? So he told us to stay with the company when we were about to resign and leave. And um, there was along the way, you know, he, he, he knew exactly how to push that button. He could, cause he knew the devotion was there, you know? And so it, we don't know that then, but we know that looking back. So it really happens when I hear the stories that I was shocked to hear. And so when that stops, I mean, it stops you in your track and you start to reflect on that, how did that happen? And then you're, you're feeling guilt you're feeling, you know, the duality is like, why did I not know that? You know, that's a common thread I'm sure you've heard too, is we just didn't know why. Because we were, I wasn't living in LA. I wasn't living in, in Espanola. I wasn't living in Herndon, Virginia a lot. 
I was living in an ashram that had its own identity with its own cozy culture. The Millis ashram still is there. The same people that I grew up with 50 years ago are still, some of them are still there and they're growing old, older, you know, in their seventies, late sixties. And they're, and they're still doing wonderful things and keeping up and they've raised families. So you don't think about all that stuff going on in his life. You only think about, so when he showed up, it was your teacher. He showed up. If you touched his feet, that was the tradition you did. You touched his feet. I never got down and kissed his feet, but you touched his feet. That was the tradition of a teacher and a student. You didn't and when people it. left, you just kind of believed the narrative that was being told and you just kind of kept it moving. Some of them, some of them, some of you think like, okay, Wagner Singh, he couldn't handle it or so-and-so left. He couldn't let he sing. But when Kirban left, I knew back in 1995, 96, Kirban could handle it. He was a strong, dynamic person. But what he couldn't handle is that he was being slapped in the face by his teacher. Mm -hmm. And even though it opened up an opportunity, if he had taken that job in 96, I wouldn't have moved from Atlanta up to Boston. Mm. So that opening gave me a chance to go home again. Yeah, I was New England's my my heart is there. So but I still saw other people being shut down and being pushed to the side. And and yet I kept see, I didn't know all the sexual stuff I heard about. We all heard about it. There's rumors. There's this. And you go like, yeah, everybody has that. It happens to everybody. You go back and look at Swami Satchitananda or other people say, oh, there was accusations here and there. But I, I didn't put it all together until like almost a year ago. And when that happened, it started to, the, the veil came down. And then I started to low. Wow. And then I started to have understanding and compassion. I went on those calls. And I listened to your generation and I listened to the, the, the stories that they were telling. Some of these people I knew, I knew them as they were when they were just kids, when they were in Masudi. I saw them, you know, grow up. I saw my own kids and, and my own son, son-in-laws who were incredible, wonderful human beings. And I saw that happening and I went, why? And, I, and you just kept asking yourself, why didn't I see it? Why was I so blind? Mm. And, and then at the same time, you go like, I can't, I can't be angry. And, 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 and you know, I, I've gone through anger, but I'm saying you can't go out and just start saying, you people are, wake up. I mean, you want to say it, but you can't. Everybody's right. on their own uh, timetable yep. to go through it. And maybe they will and maybe they won't, but it's not like, look at all the people that left. The people that left that I knew back in the 70s and 80s and they left and they were always trying to get us to wake up. You know, when are you going to wake up? This is not what you think it is. And now I understand. I understand what Vikram was saying. I understand what Sir Peter was saying. I understand. But I didn't know. I didn't know. And now I listen to Tej tell his story. And I go, you know, he's got, he's found his path. And he realizes, I mean, he did the best he could. He had integrity. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Rose had integrity. She still has integrity. Yeah. You know, you say her name is Bhagwan Kar and, I knew her son before he passed. I knew that they grew up together. My kids grew up with these guys. Yeah. When I hear her tell her story, I'm like, you know, I, I, sold, I told a friend of mine here in Portland who's a, a dear friend. And I said, you know, remember Bhagwan Kar? He goes, of course I know her. I said, he said, she's incredible. Because they knew she had, a, she loved to sing. She got a guitar and chant. And, and, and she was, she was a positive that's what kept everything going yeah. is that when you met in New Mexico at 
whatever, it's the summer solstice sadhana, or you met in Florida at the winter solstice sadhana, or you went to a lecture or course, the same people start to show up. Not only the wealthy, successful people who had the money to travel anywhere, go to India, go to wherever he went, but you had your regular people, us, the, the regular people. And you had that. And, and, and so those were the authentic, the authentic people who kept me like keeping up because I was surrounded by folks that I trusted that, that were really had the same um, mission, the real mission. And, yep. um, and so I, I, I think that's probably why it helped me. And it's good to know now that some of those people are still carrying on and still keeping up. And I could call them up when I get off this with you and I could say, oh, so-and-so. And they're like, yeah, Sadhana, I know. And we go through the same, we went through the same stuff. And some of us, when we woke up, we went, you know, I've talked to them and they go like, why didn't I know? The same thing. I asked my daughter, I said, did you ever think you were in a cult? And she said, Papaji, did you? No. No. You don't know. You don't know. Yeah. You don't know what it's, it's always easy to see somebody else's stuff <laughs> and you don't see your own stuff and you don't see what you're in. Um, yeah, that's all. It's, it's, it feels good. It's like a nice therapy to go through the process of just re going through the, the stories and realizing how fortunate you are that you're still, you're still okay. Still you know? Yeah. 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 Covered. yeah. And by the way, red is my favorite color. So <laughs> I have every color you can imagine in turbans. I have a lot of white ones, but I don't wear them as much anymore. I wear, I have, when I was a TSA, I could only wear a black turban, a navy blue turban. Uh, at, as the uniforms change, I could only wear those two colors. When it was the other color, I could wear this maroon or a reddish color and I could wear white and I could wear blue. And then, so I, I set the standard for TSA because they never had a seat before. So that, you know, what color I couldn't walk in with a saffron turban an orange turban and say, well, that's the color I'm wearing today because it wasn't uniform. See? Yeah. So I had to figure it out. And it was probably my military bearing the military training that realized, you know, I have to really show them the way and make them believe it was them that was doing it. <laughs> they're in charge. They're, you know, um, they're the authority. Don't let they're the authority, you know, but it was all good. Everything worked out and it still is working out. And by God's grace, why do you know? It will continue. I, uh, yeah, it will continue. Did you wear white most most of the time and then only start bringing in color later? Or were you always uh, like wore, a wild I, urban rebel? No, no. I wore, I start wearing colors probably early on. Like if even if I went to summer solstice, I would wear a blue turban. You know, we all had those shorter turbans we called them house turbans we you know there were saffron those yeah orange but but i but i decided uh, i decided i would wear any color i want no matter what i can wear black doesn't i don't wear i don't have a lot of black clothing i don't but if anybody wore black i wouldn't say what are you wearing black for um all that stuff about expanding the aura and extending the nerve you know all that stuff it had its place in its day but it wasn't something i could be attached to if i saw somebody without a turban and they said i'm a Sikh, i'd say good Bless you. <laughs> Bless you. I mean, I don't care. It isn't the form. The form is an extension of you. Yes. It's inside. And if it, if it if allows you to be that, I mean, you remember, I traveled so much. I was in the South for from 1986 to 1996. And for 10 years, I, and, and no one ever said like, who the, what are you? Or get out of here. You know, you're, you know, I don't want your kind around. 
That happened after 9-11. And it happened when I came out to Oregon, ironically. You think of Oregon as the tree hugger state, but I you run into people that are like doing stuff like, you know, you know, with their middle finger and stuff. And I'm like, what is going on? Right. Wow. But it is, it is, it is, um, it is, it is an interesting experience. But colors to me were like, I wanted to wear what I wanted to wear as far as the colors go. And I have the Bana, but my Bana, I actually have maroon Bana. I have blue Bana. I have, you know, colors that people, I remember when I wore a different color one than white one time, Yogi Bhajan looked at me, I was in Espanola, and he looked at me like strange, like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I just looked at him back and said, I look good. I feel good. You know, <laughs> he, he couldn't say anything to me because I was satisfying other things i guess where the golden uh, goose on those elements. the golden goose and the king had his you know the midas touch so. the midas, um what i was going to say is i i feel like men um started wearing color had colored turbans and had a little more leeway for many many years that didn't even come even like a a more informal turban for women didn't even show up until many years later, much less color. Yeah, and now it's now it's and people start wearing earrings that they didn't wear before. Yeah, it's all it's over. Oh, you could wear if you're gonna wear earrings, wear diamonds or pearls, but don't <laughs> wear the other stuff. You know, I understand all of those things change, and we just start to realize I'm me. I'm gonna be who I am. When I first we back to the original Hanuman. Yeah. It was in 1999 in Anandpur Sahib when Sarab Singh came running up to me with Sapavanko. We were all there at the 300th anniversary. And they said, he said, Papaji, look at this. He had the list of all the Jetadars going back to Baba Deep Singh, all the way up. And the seventh Jetadar of the Buddha Dal Nahongs that was in charge of the Akal Tukit back hundreds of years ago was Baba Hanuman Singh. Look, there was a Jetadar named Baba Hanuman Singh. And I started, then I started to realize what Hanuman was not the monkey god, that that's mythology, that really, Hanuman meant something even more, something I've never yet been able to um, comprehend. It literally means the, the one who conquers the mind. Mm. That's literally what it means. Hanan Man. Man means mind, and Hanan means to conquer or annihilate. They always say, oh, he's the servant of God. He's the servant of God. I'm like, well, if you conquer the mind, your heart is open to everyone. There's no duality, right? I'm not there yet. Mm. I may never get there. Right, because everything's a challenge. The mind is the challenge. Yeah. So, but I'm I'm grateful I have that name. I've started to drop the sut, even though it's my legal name, and just go by Hanuman. Oh. I wanted people to go back to that roots without his branding, so to speak. That he didn't name me Hanuman. He named me Sut Hanuman. So yes. I said, you know what? I'm Hanuman, and I'm a Singh, and that's who I am. I do have a regret. My grandmother was not happy when I did this. Is I maybe shouldn't have changed my last name to Kalsa. Because I, it was the thing we did back then, but I really wish some people have their birth name slash Kalsa or whatever. I wish I had done, but now that I'm, <laughs> I talked to my wife about, I mean, what we're gonna have to change all of these things and do all these things. I'm like, I don't unless I win the lottery, I'm not doing all that stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it is what it is. And I, yeah, because I mean, yeah, you had quite a family name. You were a third. I was. And if you go on the, my Facebook page, you'll see that my name is listed as Sahanam and Singh. My, my birth name, Erickson Kalsa, yeah. so that it's there. And I think uh, uh, I wanted to, I wanted to honor my, you know, my family, you know, and I wanted to, and I should have thought of that when I was younger and I was, God bless my mother. She, she, it didn't, it bothered her, but she still loved me unconditionally. So she still hung in there. And I, again, it's just, you know, it's just, 
how fortunate are how fortunate are we that we could have that you know i'm a historian that's how i get through things i go back and look at things and how things happened and, and how they repeat right how they repeat how if we don't learn it how we don't extract lessons and then re-embody it back into the version of me that i'm becoming then we just repeat the same thing without the, the lesson the lesson we have to learn is each of us has to learn our own our own i'm sorry has to learn our own lesson because you can say unless we let's say collectively learn from those things we're going to repeat them we never do mm. all you do is look at this country and see all of the things that has the two sins that i call it of america racism and you know towards native americans and african americans we have never overcome that. It's still part of the, the virus that we have. I, I, I heard Tej say something like that. I'm not, I'm not saying, but we have, we are dealt with a, a, a deck of cards. And how do we play those cards? And I can't speak for the greater people, the, the United States, or even people in 3HO or, or whatever. I have to speak, I have to answer to my, what I have to do. And um, um, yeah. Well, I just want to, commend you and say i i honor um that you're choosing hanuman you know that you're just dropping the branding and really going back to the essence of your own path and that just felt really good i got tingles in my back body so thank you for that yeah well i'm, I'm yeah so <laughs> uh, beautiful, yeah. beautiful. Yeah. um as we're wrapping up is there anything lastly that you really want to make sure that you share? what about that song that you were going to play we're going to get there we're going to oh, okay. song. but okay. in general like in closing what what last message do you want to share about your own experience um what you want listeners to know i think i suggest or i make a recommendation now that i'm a senior that you go within yourself and be true to yourself find your your path and listen to that voice within yourself whether it's the guru that you identify with or your soul that you identify with but follow that and never give up because eventually if you keep going if you keep focusing you know if you meditate on a candle and you just don't blink your eyes and you just look at that flame this is one technique of learning how to meditate what you will end up seeing is as you look at that white flame and you close your eyes let's say you do it for three minutes it's an experiment try it when you close your eyes in the middle of your forehead you will see a blue light why because the center of that white flame is blue gas. It's blue. You're going to see that blue light right here. And I, I think you have to concentrate, constant. You know, people have, have goals, right? Whether it's an athletic goal or a goal to raise a family or the goal to be the best at what they can be, stay true to that. Don't let anybody deter you. Nobody. We're in a time now that you can't, you can't be an autocratic ruler anymore. Yeah. You have to trust that everybody has a path that they're on. And if you merge and you come together, wow. And you don't force people to be, if they want to cut their hair, that's, that, that's fine because it's not inside them to have it. If they want to wear a turban, fine. If they don't want to wear a turban, no, then it's okay. You know, I, I everybody's going to have to deal with that. And, um, and ultimately the truth is the highest calling, you know, and I'll, I'll leave with this. And uh, maybe uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, duality about this particular, but remember I started my influence of being into this path was this little guy with a brown guy with a dhoti on named Mohandas K. Gandhi. And, you know, 
what did he say? If you saw the movie, I don't know if you ever saw the movie. It was the first time the Golden Temple was ever shown to the public all over the world was in that movie. And Ben Kingsley, part Indian himself, Englishman, uh, he's made a movie about Sikhs after that. He made a movie called Learning to Drive, a really good story about the whole Sikh, really exposed people. But in the movie Gandhi, he says at the end of the movie, as he's, his ashes are being strewn with rose petals on the Ganges, he said, when I despair, and I see that tyrants have that, I'm paraphrasing, that tyrants have that moment where they run things, they rule. In, then I realize that in the end, truth always, always will prevail. Mm. We have to keep going. And maybe that Bij mantra of Satnam was the greatest gift that this, this yogi, this man gave to, gave to us because it, it has a lot of power. It originally comes from Guru Nanak. Yeah. the mul mantra and so if you use that and you and that's what you do you'll get there and if you have another prayer or another mantra whether it's amen or alleluia or shalom or whatever or om shanti focus mm. on that be true to your destiny be true to your path mm. thank you Saraman. thank you so much uh, for sharing yourself so cleanly um do you want to tell us about your song well, um, the song that I told you, my wife Amrakar turned on to me many, many years ago. She she clung to this song. It reminded her of something very dear to her. And it's called Caledonia. And it's by a folk singer from Scotland who wrote the song. Uh, and his name, McLean, Doogie McLean. And um, that song resonates with me because for me, it's about returning to your soul, returning to your home. Caledonia means this place that is your origin. It could be your family, it could be your country, it could be your true self. But all along the path, you're going to meet people and you're going to lose friends and you're going to gain more friends. And that's what the song says. And I relate to that song. It's a heart-centered song. Well, let's listen. Genuinely homesick, and uh, you might want to uh, join in with the chorus of this and see how much noise you can make. I don't know if you can see the changes that have come over me in these last few days. I've been afraid that I might drift away. I've been telling old stories, singing songs that make me think about where I came from. That's the reasons why I seem so far away today. Oh, and let me tell you that I love you, that I think about you all the time. Caledonia, you're calling me. Now I'm going home but If I should become a stranger You know that it would make me more than sad Caledonia's been everything I've ever had oh, and I have no Why, Gadoo? Thank you so much again for joining us, Sat Hanuman Singh Khalsa. 
This has been another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. If you'd like to contribute to this podcast, you can make a one-time or monthly donation at gurunishan.com slash uncomfortable conversations. And if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, please send me an email to gn at gurunishan.com. You can subscribe, follow, and support my provocative truth-telling work at gurunishan.com. As a side note, gurunishan does have a C, N-I-S-C-H-A-N.com. Guru's Banner. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much. <laughs>